This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Unrestrained Capitalism. Fuck yeah! Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's all about alien invasions with 1988's They Live and 2002's Signs. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. That's right. What do you got? Some very easy questions this Okey week. dokie. What is the relationship between Ginger and Bridget in 2000's Ginger Snaps? They're sisters. That is correct. I thought you were going to say Ginger and Marianne for some reason. That's immediately where my head goes. <laughs> <laughs> they are, in fact, sisters. All right, Kelsey, you want easy. Here's easy. What color hair do all the mysterious children have in Village of the Damned, 1960. Platinum Blonde. That is correct. Good for you. Easy questions this week to get us started on this early morning. We have very few opportunities to record this week, and it is early in the morning, so <laughs> sorry if we're tired. <laughs> All right, first up, we're going to talk about 1988's They Live, based on the short story 8 O'Clock in the Morning and... The comic book adaptation of that, called Nada, both written by Ray Nelson, adapted for the screen by Frank Armitage, Armitage, depends on who you ask. <laughs> In the movie Get Out, the family pronounces their name Armitage. Uh, the patriarch of the Armitage family. Also known as John Carpenter, it was his pen name. And directed by John Carpenter, starring... <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> Keith David and Meg Foster. Apparently he decided to use the pen name because he didn't feel he should have like personal writing credit for the script because it's based so heavily in somebody else's work. So he used the name Frank Armitage or Armitage, and that's based on a character in the Dunwich Horror, which is a story by H.P. Lovecraft, which is really interesting. We'll talk about it in a moment. And he decided on that name because Lovecraft wrote about the hidden world. This is a quote, the world underneath. His stories were about gods who are repressed, who were once on Earth and are now coming back. The world underneath has a great deal to do with they live. Kelsey, why is H.P. Lovecraft important? Well, when we do our supernatural check-in, well, we'll have to... Why not do it right now? Oh, okay. <laughs> supernatural. It's time for another supernatural check-in. Carry on my We've been watching a little bit more of Supernatural. We've finished through season six. And at the end, the last few episodes of season six... 
H.P. Lovecraft becomes an important part of the story because he and some friends opened up a portal to purgatory. They were successful and they didn't even know it. And I guess he was killed by a character in the supernatural story. So a little bit of a link there. Uh, wrapped up season six. Not happy about... So we didn't get to start season seven, and I really hope that it's like a joke about Castiel being a dick all of a sudden. Yeah, because he's, I mean, spoilers for Supernatural. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing here. He becomes the new god. Which I'm fine with. I'm fine with. I just with. don't want him to be a dick about it. Yeah, he's just kind of a douchebag. Kneel before me. And then it's like, that's the end of the episode. And I kind of want season seven to come in and go, ah, I'm just kidding. Exactly. But, but he has, he's not very good with a sense of humor. And now that he has all this power, I don't know. We're going to find out. We're going to keep watching. We are not even halfway through the total run of Supernatural, which we now know is going to be 15 seasons because they announced that this 15th season is the final season of Supernatural. I think that's okay. I don't think this show needs to go on any longer. 15 seasons is a lot. Of seasons. I just don't know why they keep doing things because they want me to stop watching. Like what? Like turning Cassiel into a fucking dick for no reason. <laughs> what else was did they do that made you want to stop watching? They turned Dean into a dick? Yeah. They turned Sam into a dick? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's just their thing. They pick a character and go, you, you're a dick now. <laughs> Sometimes they go, you, you're nice now. They go back and forth. And that's what drives the drama here. Could you just not take my my main characters and turn them into assholes? Kelsey's main characters, in quotes, are Castiel and, more importantly, Dreamy Dean. <laughs> Didn't, uh, in, in one of the episodes, in the last episode of the season, I think Sam calls Dean... Like a model type, like a Calvin Klein model type or something like that when he lost his memories and didn't know who he was. That's yes. how he described Dean. I, it, when it's meta, it's glorious. Dean is, uh, he's pretty great. He's gorgeous <laughs> man. And here's dreamy. the thing. I, don't really, I didn't really care that Sam became a dick, but I became upset because it was affecting Dean's happiness. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we need to stop this. Kelsey also wanted me to write down that in, like, the second to last or the last episode of the season, Sam is in a coma, and when Dean, not knowing what to do, asks if they can do something like in Dreamscape. Which thought was pretty funny. Oh, yeah. I love when they make references, and this is one of them. He had no idea how to deal with the fact that Sam was just in a coma. <laughs> Thought maybe we can go into his dreams and help him out. Dreamscape. Dreams. He actually says that. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like no one's going to get that reference. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people have seen Dreamscape. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to continue on with season seven when we have some free time. It is slow going, I know. But if it wasn't so slow going, would you get so many supernatural check-ins? <laughs> would you have so much to look forward to in the future? <laughs> no. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and that's our supernatural check-in. There'll be peace when you are done. Kelsey, what is They Live About? A drifter 
joins a group of people and finds a conspiracy theory that aliens are running the show, discovers sunglasses that prove it, and then he has to save the day. That's a pretty good summary. Should people watch this movie? Yes. Yes. I really, really liked it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a classic. I mean, it's a silly 80s movie, right. but it's great. I mean, listen, it's not fucking Schindler's List, <laughs> but it's certainly fun. All right, well, you can take that advice or you can leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1988's They Live. From John Carpenter. They control what you see. We have been lulled into a trance. They decide what you hear. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. You think they're people, just like you. What do these things want, and why are they here? You're wrong. Dead wrong. John Carpenter's They Live, rated R. Starts Friday, November 4th, at theaters everywhere. Kelsey, can you get us started? What happens and they live? A backpacking drifter from Denver, Colorado needs a job. He used to work at a bank, but they were closing all their banks. And apparently this is like a thing. Everybody's looking for jobs right now. This drifter, who, by the way, is never given a name, but in the credits they call him Nada, because that's the name used in the comic book adaptation of the original story. Nada, as in nothing? Yes. He doesn't have a name. Nada is Rowdy Roddy Piper, famous Canadian wrestler who plays a Scott. Famous, he wears the the kilt and the white T-shirt that says Hot Rod on it. I had no idea. Really? Big, big conflicts with Hulk Hogan? Nope. WrestleMania? I know what WrestleMania is. Yeah, so. I know who Hulk Hogan is. I've never heard of Rowdy Roddy Piper. Three years prior to the making of this movie was the very first WrestleMania, 1985. The main event of the first WrestleMania was Hulk Hogan and Mr. T versus Paul Orndorff and Rowdy Roddy Piper. So he was in the headline match against Hulk Hogan and Mr. T in the very first WrestleMania. Well, that's very exciting. He's played a, a heel. He's played a face. He is very, very good at being a heel. And we'll talk a little bit more about his appearances and other things a little bit later. So we have Rowdy Roddy Piper as Drifter Nada. Go ahead. He can't find a job. He's looking. He's walking around and he comes across this... Street preacher who's blind, and he's shouting about how these pe- these there are people behind the scenes, uh, and that we need to open our eyes and wake up. Our owners have us and control us. Wake up! They are our masters. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. So he walks away from that, and then he finds this construction area, and he asks if he can get a job there. And the guy's like, well, it's a union job. And he looks around, and he's pretty sure that it's not really a union job. And he's like, all right, well, can I speak with the shop steward? Mm -hmm. Proving that he knows his way around a construction site. 
Right. He lets him join, lets him work there, but he tells him, no sleeping here. And, uh, you know, you don't get to stay here the night. And he's like, well, then where should I go? And when do I get paid? <laughs> Thursday. Yes. Keith David is working on this construction site. And he he sees that Rowdy Roddy Piper doesn't have anywhere to go. Can I just say I appreciate that you're calling him Rowdy Roddy Piper? <laughs> His real name is Roderick. 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 Rowdy Roddy Piper just kind of ignores him. So Keith David walks away, and then Rowdy Rowdy Piper just follows him. So Keith David says, I don't like people following me. And Piper says, I don't like joining until I see where the person's going. I don't like nobody following me unless I know why. Well, I don't join up with anybody until I see where he's going. Which is a little insight into his character. Right. He's not a blind... Follower. Yeah. Yeah, uh uh-huh. So they get to this place, which I guess is supposed to be kind of like a campsite led by a church, but it's just a vacant lot. Is that that legal? No. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, it's like you see that all the time. If you live in any metropolitan area, you know they're just... They're just areas where homeless people set up camp. Because what else are they going to do? I completely understand that. Mm. But they have, like, he says they've got hot showers. He says that they've got some good food. Like, they're probably being ignored by the city. It's not a great response to the homeless problem, but it is better than running them out of town, uh, which they end up doing later. Well, I just wondered... Who funds it? You know, who provides the food? The church. How do they get the hot water? Like, you know? The church. And then we find out it's not really a church. Yeah. Yeah, but the people who are concerned about this cabal that's running the world are also the people that are concerned about, you know, homeless people. You really like, you really like that word. Cabal? Yeah. Why? I've said it twice? <laughs> it a lot when we were watching God Told Me To. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the way I describe the, you know, these unseen groups with lots of power. A cabal. <laughs> we learn a little bit about Keith David's life, and we find out that he also, he had a job at the steel company, but they are also starting to close down a lot of places. So a lot of people are out of work. He is actually married and has children, but they all live in Detroit, and he is here to make money for them. John Carpenter specifically cast Keith David because he had worked with him before in The Thing, like immediately prior to making this. And he wanted a character who, quote, wouldn't be a traditional sidekick, but could hold his own. Uh, So he wrote the role specifically for Keith David in mind. The role of Nada was written for Kurt Russell, of course, because obviously Carpenter loves working with Kurt Russell. But up to this point, he had cast Kurt Russell in three other movies, (laughs) Escape from New York, The Thing, and Big Trouble in Little China. And he's like, I should probably not cast him in another movie. So he reached out to Roddy Piper. Now... He knew who Roddy Piper was because before he got his big break when he was really young, he 
he was really into wrestling and specifically he wrote like columns for wrestling magazines and that sort of thing. So he was tapped into the wrestling scene and, and he saw Roddy Piper in WrestleMania three, where he was in a hair versus hair match with Adrian Adonis. WrestleMania three is when Hulk Hogan fought Andre the giant. So just for context, uh, immediately prior to this. Look, Roddy Piper is fine in this, but I think we can both agree that Kurt Russell would have been a better choice. You know... You know, fight me on that? No, I'm trying to find a problem with that statement. <laughs> I don't think I can. There isn't anything wrong with that statement. I think maybe... It's perfectly true. I think maybe... Kurt Russell would have been a little bit too lighthearted. I thought... Even in the thing, he's... I, man, no, you're right. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Continue. Now that we're talking about the cast, we should probably point out that Meg Foster was Evil Lynn in Masters of the Universe. Okay. <laughs> Masters of the Universe was filmed in our neighborhood. <laughs> Masters of the Universe. Our old neighborhood, in case you're looking to stalk us. No, we don't live there anymore. So he's talking to Keith David, and Keith David is very angry about a lot of things. And this movie has a bunch of angry men in it. <laughs> and Roddy Piper says, you know, you ought to have some more patience with life. And Keith David yells at him, I'm all out. Okay. So this is an important part of kind of the philosophy, I guess you could say, of the movie. The conversation they're having is about why it's so hard to find a job and why Keith David needed to leave his family in order to find a place where he can make money and eventually get a home for them and in the meantime send money back to them. And he can't be with his wife and kid because the economy is fucked. He talks about something that's pretty – prescient this is like 10 minutes into the movie and they're already having this conversation about something that happened recently with big bank bailouts it's the same sort of opinion that people have about that the line he says is we gave the steel companies a break when they needed it know what they gave themselves raises mm -hmm. we gave the steel companies a break when they needed it know what they gave themselves raises the golden rule he who has the gold makes the rule. They close one more factory, we should take a sledge to one of their fancy fucking foreign cars. You know, you ought to have a little more patience with life. Yeah, well, I'm all out. Now, this is the sort of conversation that people point to when they call this movie anti-Semitic. We're going to talk briefly about it being anti-Semitic and then move on. <laughs> How does that sound? Okay. Personally, I think that's bullshit. But it is true that Nazis kind of co-opted it, like neo-Nazis. They point to it, or white supremacist groups and that sort of thing. They point to it and say, oh, this is an allegory for Jews running the world because it's about <laughs> the world of finance and it's about this underground group of powerful people who are really in control of everything. And that's what anti-Semites believe is that – the Jews control the world and specifically they control Hollywood. And so this is John Carpenter's effort to sort of like speak out against that. Now, 
John Carpenter specifically came out and said, it was 1988. This movie is an indictment of Reaganomics. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. It is absolutely 100% not anti-Semitism. <laughs> it's not about the Jews. It's about the conservatives. <laughs> He specifically said, They Live is about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. It has nothing to do with Jewish control of the world, which is slander and a lie. Mm -hmm. End quote. The fact of the matter is, fuckhead Nazis co-op shit. It's kind of what they do. They do it all the time. They co-op American History X, <laughs> which is explicitly anti-skinhead. Explicitly. But the problem with making a movie that is so cool is that it's really easy for them to go, F I don't care about the message. That makes us look cool, right? So that's the thing about American I don't American know how anybody X. could look at because – I they know don't, they do. I know they do. Because they don't disagree with the way the movie portrays them. They're like, yeah, this is exactly who we are and how we want to appear. So but it's feel, not bad news for them. But I feel like you're not watching it. Oh, they don't give a shit. Like, you don't, like, you're too stupid to understand no, 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 what they're because, saying. Because they don't have a lot in culture to grasp onto, so they kind of grasp at these straws. Lindsay Ellis has a really good essay on her channel on YouTube about how the only way to effectively produce a movie about Nazis where they won't latch onto it and say, fuck yeah, this is who we are, is to make fun of them. So movies that make light of things like you know, Nazi Germany, like the producers, is an effective mockery of Nazis because there's nothing in there for them to grab onto and relate to and co-opt for their own. It's only a thing that says you guys are fuckheads and you look ridiculous and, and yet, making fun of them. And yet people can see that and not understand that they're making fun of them. Right. They think that it's offensive to make fun of uh, Nazis because Nazis were a serious threat. But mm -hmm. when you treat them seriously, Nazis are like, fuck yes. Awesome. I like that. And so why give the Nazis what they want? Anyway, fucking asshole racists take things from movies and co-op them all the time. It doesn't mean that that thing is racist. For instance, they take the term red-pilled. To be red-pilled is to wake up to the great conspiracy against white men. <laughs> they stole that from Matrix. You know, a movie that was made by two transgender women that stars a woman, a black guy. <laughs> like, obviously, it's ridiculous to say because Nazis co-opted it, it must be anti-Semitic. <laughs> that isn't to say that you shouldn't avoid tropes that can harm victimized groups. But the particular trope that people are latching onto is world domination and financial markets. And now you can't make a movie about people taking over the world and economies because it's anti-Semitic is basically the rule that's being addressed here. But it's a commentary against rampant, out-of-control capitalism. And are we just not allowed to make movies about that anymore because people might perceive it as anti-Semitic? So, yes, you can't just say that the way the author wants you to interpret his film is the only way to interpret his film. You can't say that, right? Authorial intent is not the end-all, be-all in interpreting a movie. That is true. But when your statement is, this movie is anti-Semitic, as in, I think 
Carpenter has an anti-Semitic message he's trying to get out there. You kind of have to listen to the things he's actually saying about it mm-hmm. and how they relate to the messages that are actually communicated in the movie. And none of them are explicitly anti-Semitic. So when he comes out and says it is not about the Jews, mm-hmm. it is about capitalism and yuppies, then that's what it's about. And you can twist it and interpret it any way you want, but you can't blame Carpenter yeah. for that. When I he agree. is explicitly saying that, no, fuck Nazis. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my little offshoot on this whole side conversation. It's absolutely ridiculous. No, it's about Reaganism. <laughs> that's what it's about. <laughs> and it's so obviously about Reaganism. Okay. But because a Nazi said it was about Jews, you believed him. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So we learn that Keith David doesn't trust anybody, but Roddy Piper is like, I believe in America. Yeah. And I think the idea here is that he's a white boy, so he hasn't had quite as much. Right. He is a drifter. He is homeless. He doesn't have a job. So it's not that he isn't victimized in some way by this system, but he also isn't quite as victimized as somebody like Keith David might be. And his family. So then at this campsite, they have a working television, which I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Where are they getting the power from? Extension cords? <gasps> Who's paying No, there's for generators it? all over the place. Oh. Okay. The church. By God. The church. <laughs> but don't you understand about the church? Where do they get all their money from? That's that's the thing. Is there this the, what it turns out is that the church is an underground resistance movement and not really a church. And then you have to start wondering, okay, then where do they get their money from? <laughs> I don't know. So they're watching this TV and the signal gets cut out, and instead you see this guy saying that. We're being lulled into a trance. There's signals that are being sent out to us and we can't see them. We can't hear them or anything, but they're there and they remain safe as long as they are not discovered. Trying to explain that you are asleep and the people that are watching it are like, oh, no, I have a headache. (laughs) Can you say that again? (laughs) Oh, no, I have a headache. Oh, no, I have a headache. (laughs) And, like, people, yeah, people are like, get this off the station because they don't like it because it's affecting their brain. Well, it's also interrupting their shows that they're watching and what they want to consume. But they don't realize that they're more upset because something is happening physically. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. So, yeah, this movie is not very subtle, which is why Chris's whole tirade two seconds ago is <laughs> even more ridiculous because of how not subtle this is. Like, how right. obvious it is that it's like Republicans are the enemy yeah. and well, capitalism not, yeah, is the it's enemy. Capitalism, it's rampant, out-of-control capitalism is the enemy. We should probably be very clear about that. <laughs> it's not saying that conservatives are the problem. It's saying that Reaganomics is the problem. This idea that capitalism fixes everything with no concern for all the harms that it has. I mean, this is the same year that they made society, isn't it? Or very close to it, yeah. I mean, it was. It's there's definitely a movement happening here where it's like, no, fuck this. Yeah. We don't agree with it, and it's destroying our... Society. He also says that they are being bred for slavery, which didn't make much sense for me until the end. 
because I was trying to wrap my mind around how it all worked. I still have questions about how it works. I still yes. don't quite understand. It's not a perfect airtight plot. It's no. really not. <laughs> that's okay. He decides to look into the church because he's hearing them singing at like random hours at night. Yeah, and people and, keep going in and out and in and out. Yeah, yeah, things are very strange. So he goes in and he finds like a, a wall that he can move out of the way and there's all these boxes, but he puts the, the wall back and then the blind preacher from earlier in the film is there. Mm-hmm. And he feels his face and he's like, oh, I've dreamt about you coming or whatever and and Roddy Piper runs away, and the guy says, you'll be back. Yeah, you'll be back. <laughs> this world may have blinded me, but the Lord has let me see. You'll be back. You'll be back. Roddy Piper tries to tell Keith David about what is going on, and Keith David is like, I don't want to know. It's not our business. Keep your head down. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a lot from him in that regard in this movie, and... I get it. He's doing it because he wants, he just wants to be able to take care of his family. That's all that matters. You get me involved in other shit, and that's not what I'm not going to be able to do. It endangers my ability to take care of my family. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think that that, for me, is probably one of the most real issues in the film mm-hmm. because. As angry as he is about everything that's wrong with the system or whatever, he can't do anything about it because his first priority is the well-being of himself and his family and anything any action he takes contrary to the system that's been set up endangers the lives of his family and that's something that i think like a lot of people don't think about like when i when i show my students things and they're like why would any like like last year i was teaching my kids about cesar chavez and they were just mm. like why would anyone put up with that why why don't ever why doesn't everyone become cesar chavez and it's like because there are other factors yeah there are risks associated with that and a lot of people fail life is not just i see something and i stand up tall for it, it and then it, everything works out yeah exactly yeah. No, like, there are there, consequences yeah and i think that that's something that they they, the mystical they, yeah. can use against you. Yeah. So the cops show up. Yeah, and they ransack the little shanty town. Yeah, they raid it. And they're fucking killing people and running over stuff. So it's obviously outside of what their normal power would be. <laughs> well, it's outside of what their legal power is. Yes. This stuff kind of happens more often than you'd like to think. Right. And nobody knows and nobody cares. Yep. In all the kerfuffle, Roddy Piper is able to get his hands on one of those boxes. Yeah, he comes back the next morning and gets it. And when he opens it up, he finds that it's filled with sunglasses. Yeah. And he's really annoyed, right? But he puts a pair on and he starts seeing things. Yeah, he hides the box in the bottom of a trash can. Which, as soon as I saw it, I wrote down... Uh, trash gets picked up, dude. Yeah, I know, right? Maybe he assumed he was going to come back before the trash day. Yeah, but he's walking around, and he ends up putting on the sunglasses, and there's several shots of him looking at everything. This is an extended part of the movie. Everything is in black and white until they get contacts, and then sometimes it goes back and forth. Every piece of printed material says something like consume or obey. 
And it's all subliminal messaging. Marry and reproduce, no independent thought, consume, watch TV, submit, conform, buy, stay asleep. Do not question authority. Those are all the ones that I wrote down. Uh (laughs) Have you heard of Shepard Fairey? Nope. Shepard Fairey is one of the most famous graffiti artists. Uh, He's the one who who started that Obey campaign. Ironically, he turned street art into a capitalist endeavor. Right? Right. (laughs) He made a lot of moolah off of it. Uh, But you've seen those stickers that just say Obey and they have somebody's face. Interestingly, that face is Andre the Giant, another wrestler. Really? Yes. That makes so much sense now that you say it, but I never would have thought (laughs) until you said it. Yeah, he said specifically They Live was the basis for the use of the word obey. The movie has a very strong message about the power of commercialism and the way that people are manipulated by advertising. And yet then he proceeded to put it on t-shirts and hats and stickers and sell them to people. Yep. <laughs> but I mean, he should get paid for his art. That is true. <laughs> I am not disparaging that. But when your message is consumer systems suck – and you're a sheep if you follow them, and then you participate in that, it's a little hard to take you seriously It's like the Black Mirror episode. Yeah. And it's not like he does it to fund his message. His message is the the commodity that he is selling. That's the problem. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. It's the thing. Everyone's against capitalism until (laughs) it works in their favor. (laughs) It's true. Doesn't mean it works. So then he sees his first alien. So he's reading, he's trying to read through a newspaper, but everything in there is just all those things I was just saying. And he looks up and he sees this scary looking dude. Yeah, this dude with this face on. Now they had a lot of options of what to do with the makeup, how to make these aliens look. But specifically, Carpenter sees capitalism or rampant out-of-control capitalism as like a devolution of humanity. And so he wanted the aliens to look like fucked-up humans. That's why they look the way that they do. They don't look like your traditional little green men. And this was a unique view of what aliens in disguise could potentially look like. Almost all of... These ghouls, as they're called, are played by one person, Jeff Amata, who is a multiple black belt. He is a choreographer for a lot of the scenes, including the fight scene that we'll get to later. But he's just the right size. And so they put him in all the outfits, including the women, except for parts where there needs to be more than one on screen at a time, in which case they did get other people. But you know, the woman in heels and a dress and a wig and carrying a purse and getting into the car, like that's Jeff Amata because he was just the perfect size for it. And then they had to create one face for him and that's it, right? It makes it so much easier. That makes sense. So he notices that Roddy Piper is looking at him very strangely and he's like, you know, what's your problem? What's your problem? Then when he looks at the guy who works there uh, in selling the newspapers, he looks at the money and it says, this is your God. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he runs into this 
shopping market, like a like a grocery store almost. And he goes inside and he's seeing that real people are mixing in with these these fucked up looking people and the like ghouls. Yes, and they're they're like talking to humans and nobody can tell. Yeah. The most expensive shot in the entire movie, by the way, is in this market because literally every single object in that supermarket Everything that has print on it, so every single label of every single object had to be uh, created and printed and put on and and placed in just the right way throughout the entire uh, little store. So that that was very time-consuming and very expensive. And of all the things you see in the movie, cost the most. He ends up saying to one of them, you're real fucking ugly formaldehyde face. Yeah. You know... You look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. You, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on, formaldehyde face. That's what That's we got. That's enough out of you. And she talks into her little... Wristwatch uh, communicator like Dick fucking Tracy. Yes, and <laughs> says, I've got one that can see. Yes. So he falls over, scrambles out. He's like, I don't like this one bit. <laughs> and he gets confronted by cops. He notices that the cops are ghouls as well. So he feels okay when he fucking murders them. And yeah, he just goes on a killing spree. Basically. He takes he takes their guns, including the shotgun that they had in the cop car. And he goes to a bank. And this is where he utters his famous line. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. This was ad-libbed by Roddy Piper. The thing is, is you have to do a lot of promo shoots when you're a wrestler. Those are the ones when the wrestlers are talking to camera, but they're really talking to their opponent or the audience or whatever. A lot of promos are completely ad-libbed there's like okay you need to talk shit about this guy go and then they just have to ad-lib it right so as a wrestler you need to be good at that sort of promo work and so you need to practice it and you need to plan it and you need to write down what it is that you're going to say because a bad promo can go hilariously bad Mm -hmm. and apparently this was one of the things that piper had already written and had like in a notebook And when he had the opportunity to ad-lib a line, this is the line that he chose. And it's really, really quite famous. It's very famous. (laughs) Very, very famous. Duke Nukem 3D, the video game that came out in 96, actually starts with the line, it's time to kick ass and chew bubblegum and I'm all out of gum, (laughs) specifically what he says. They use it in the first and I think second Fallout games. It's all over the place and it is referenced fucking everywhere and it's brilliant it's in the IT crowd I've just run out of milk or whatever it is that he says I came here to drink milk and kick ass and I've just finished my milk it's all over the place so you've ever heard this it's from right <laughs> where's that from my brain what's that from my brain it's from Roddy Piper's brain <laughs> You find out that they can disappear. They press a little button. 
Yeah. They can disappear. So their wristwatches are also teleportation devices, and that comes that, that's important later. In order to get away, he basically carjacks someone. Yes. <laughs> and this is the lady. Her name is Holly, and she's played by Meg Foster. And she's just like, okay, whatever, just don't hurt me, take the car, whatever. So they get back to her house, and he's really tired, and, you know, he he's trying to explain it to her, but of course she's not believing him, right? And he's like, here, just, you have to wear them. And she's like, it doesn't matter if I see it or not, I'll tell you that I do. Right. But here's she's the thing. She's very self-aware and candid about it. Yeah. But here's the thing. I could just be like, put them on. And tell me what you see. If it's not what, if it's not right, then I'll know you're fucking lying. Yes, that would have been the smart thing to do if you wanted to see if somebody was lying. He's not thinking somebody's going to lie. He's thinking he's going to show them, he's going to reveal the truth to them, and their eyes are going to open up. That's the way Piper's going through this. So, yes, if your objective was to find out if they're lying, you would test them. He's not giving them the sunglasses as a test. He thinks that the sunglasses are the cure to the problem. So? So if she's part of the problem, you give her the sunglasses and she's cured. It's not trying to figure out whether or not she's lying. Okay, but what I'm saying is she's the reason he doesn't have her put them on is because she says, I'll just say I see that no matter what. Okay, wear them and tell me what you see. And if she says, I see green goblins, then you're going to be like, okay, obviously it doesn't work. I'm crazy. <laughs> like, it's not. That's fair. That's fair. It's a very simple fix. <laughs> right. Yeah. So he just kind of doesn't try. And then they're chatting a little bit. And then she shoves him through her window <laughs> and off her balcony. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's so funny. Because at one point she gets up and he's like, don't fuck with me. And she's like, I'm thirsty. So she goes and she gets a bottle of wine. And I was like, you're thirsty for some wine? Yeah. <laughs> Weird thing to drink in this situation. And then she uses it. To knock him out. Yeah, knock him out of the building. Or he goes rolling down the hills, and he hides under an overpass as the cops come by, because she called the cops. She also found the glasses, which he left there. So he has to go back and find new glasses. So he goes back to the trash can, which is now empty, but he sees the garbage truck driving away. So he chases after it, climbs in, finds... A few glasses and takes two of them. And this is when Frank, Keith David's character, is like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, because apparently he was following him. Yes, because he wanted to know what was going on. He heard reports that this guy that he thinks is a stand-up individual and his friend has gone on a murdering rampage. Because you can't forget, <laughs> while we, the audience, see that he's killing aliens, the story in the real world that everyone else is getting is that a madman is murdering people. So he's like, what the fuck? is going on. You need to explain to me what's going on. And he's like, I will put on the glasses. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? No, I'm not doing anything you say. Just get out of here. Fine. I'll pretend I never saw you, but you need to leave right now. Why he would even give him that concession is a little bit weird. If you think he's a murderer, but he's giving him the benefit of the doubt, but he doesn't want to get involved in anything. Wait, Hey, you better find yourself someplace to hide and keep praying nobody ever finds you. Try these on. Look, you crazy mother. Put these on. Hey! 
Stay away from me. I'm telling you, you dumb son of a bitch. This is it. This, this is fight it, scene goes on for far too long. No, it doesn't. It goes on just as long as it needs to go on. No, it goes Which on for way too over long. Over five minutes. I don't think you understand the value of this fight scene. It doesn't contribute to the story. It's like a little break from the story where you get to see two strong physical men just go at it. Yeah? They're ex- Is that what you're into, babe? Yeah. Two men going Keith at Keith David it? and Roddy Piper, did you see their bodies? Apparently people didn't believe that Roddy Piper was really as cut as he Well, was. that's what made me be like, what the fuck? <laughs> when I first saw him shirtless on the job at the construction uh-huh. site, that's when you told me that he was a wrestler. And uh-huh. I was like, holy well, crap. Well, even as a wrestler, he didn't always have a great physique. It wasn't until the late 80s that people started really getting cut. <laughs> because wrestlers were normally like kind of big bulky dudes but not like muscular ripped guys uh, that didn't come until the late 80s really in force you look at a big strong wrestler type and he was like like a power lifter type those guys aren't cut they're bulky you know that's what wrestlers were so when you see him Roddy Piper and he's kind of just like a normal dude just like a loud, angry guy on screen in wrestling. And then you see him in this movie with his shirt off and he looks cut. And you're like, wait, I'm a Newton bitter. Well, yeah, you're thinking about the the other Roddy Piper. <laughs> the Roddy Piper who wasn't cut because you didn't have to be. But starting around this time, it became important. People like Ultimate Warrior were really big and popular and he was cut. And then Hulk Hogan started to need to get cut. You know, so anyway. That's that's another wrestling diversion, but it's just an awesome scene where two desperate men are letting out their anger and their frustration against each other. The, these are the victims of the broken society that they live in, and they're fighting against each other, which is, unfortunately, a system of broken power structures where the people who are at the bottom turn on each other instead of the people who are actually oppressing them. That's what this scene is about. And it lasts over five minutes, and it is glorious. There are several times, I described it in the last episode, it's like 15 minutes of them punching each other in the balls. It's obviously not actually 15 minutes, that was hyperbole. But there's a lot of like, like Keith David knees Piper in the balls like six or seven times. In a row? In a row. <laughs> it's so good. And there are several wrestling moves. There are like three different forms of a suplex in it. It's really, really awesome. And and even when you think it's going to be done. Every time you think yes, it's done. Yes, multiple times. Piper's on the ground. David reaches out his hand to help him up. Piper takes his hand and doesn't swat it away. David lifts him up like he's going to help him up off the ground. And all he's doing is just pulling him in for another punch and knocking him down. And it does that like three times. It is so great. You're just like, you're so exhausted and you're feeling like this fight can't go on any longer. And then it does. And I can understand why you would have the reaction of why won't this end? On the other hand, I have the the reaction of, oh, my God, I can't believe it's still going. Like, it's awesome. I love it. I love it. And lots of people love it. 
and it is referenced in tons and tons and tons of things, just like kicking ass and chewing bubblegum. There's the cripple fight scene in South Park. That's the name of it. So I'm sorry. That is based heavily on this fight. Keith David is actually in, he plays the president in Rick and Morty. And there is a very long fight scene that he has with Rick. So Keith David and Rick kind of emulate this fight scene in Family Guy. That That's what the fight between Peter and the giant chicken is kind of spoofing, is the fight scene that goes on for too long in They Live. In Saints Row 4, which is an awesome game, <laughs> Keith David is a voice in Saints Row 4. He is... Keith David. He's literally playing himself. And you are the president of the United States, and he is your vice president. <laughs> and there is a mission where you have to kind of go into his head, and uh, it's like a simulation of his nightmare. And in it, you, the character, have to fight Keith David, and you team up with literally Rowdy Roddy Piper wearing the kilt and the hot rod shirt in order to fight Keith David. And get the information that you need later on it's revealed that they live is not his nightmare keith david's nightmare is fighting roddy piper like the person keith david his nightmare is fighting roddy piper <laughs> like that's awesome this this fight is fucking everywhere and you will see it in all sorts of things now that you've seen it here well i did not enjoy it <laughs> But I don't like fight scenes. Yeah. Not a fighting type of person. Uh-huh. And yeah, it's all because he wants him to wear the glasses and he won't. Yeah. So they just go, 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 go. And then eventually he does put on the glasses. Yeah, he kind of forces the glasses on him. Keith David is completely fucked up, which isn't to say that Piper is not. He really is. Oh, there's this great scene where Piper swings a board at him and David dodges it and it smashes the rear windshield of David's car. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he apologizes. He's really sorry because this is about love, this fight for for uh, for Piper. He's like, I, I need to defeat you so I can save you, you know? Like, he actually cares about Keith David's character. And so his goal is not to hurt or upset David. And yet he was coming at him with a board. It's so hard that it broke the windshield. <laughs> yep. Yep. But he gets the glasses on him and then Keith David's like, what the fuck is going on? And yada yada. And then they're both walking down the street and they both have these sunglasses on. And they end up going to a secret underground discussion about this shit. And they find the girl is there and she's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Yeah. So her story is, is that finding the glasses revealed everything to her and she... She thought he was just a crazy dude, because of course she did. But now she's awakened. And Roddy Piper and Keith David have a discussion about all the things that are going on and how they think that, like, it's been here for a long time. These aliens have been here for a mm -hmm. long time. And they think that the aliens are actually changing, like, people's pers personas and stuff. And Roddy Piper talks about his dad and how his dad would beat him up. And he thinks that maybe it had something to do with them being kept down and repressed and everything. Yeah. And he's like, I ain't daddy's little boy no more, so I'm going to fight back this time. Yeah. 
And they also get contacts here to replace the sunglasses because the sunglasses don't work as well and they cause major headaches and they kind of get you a little high, but in a bad way. So the contacts kind of fix that. So now they don't need to be wearing sunglasses all the time, which looks weird. And they can always know who is and who isn't a ghoul. Now, this meeting gets raided by the police, obviously. And tons of these people end up dying in this. They have one of the wristwatches as they're trying to escape because the activists have stolen these wristwatches and they're trying to figure out how to work them, right? And so... Keith David has one of them, and he's trying to use one to teleport out of there, and it malfunctions. And he it, it like, sparks or whatever, and he throws it on the ground. And while they're getting shot at down this alleyway, it opens up a portal. And a message that says, hey, this portal, your, your watch is malfunctioning. This portal's going to stay open for 15 seconds or whatever. Get in now. Attention. Your wristwatch has malfunctioned. This entryway is temporary and will disappear. Get in What? Move. We don't know what's down there. Now. And so they jump into the portal and basically it takes them to this secret. Underground tunnels. Yeah. And it's the ghouls talking openly about their campaign and how successful they are and how much money everybody's making. And how the rich humans have helped them get there and how they've helped them increase their profit margins. You can see it's very, very similar to what you might see in an actual business keynote speech or what have you talking about their earnings for the fiscal year or whatever. It's, It's very similar to that design. And they run into... Uh, a homeless that, person. That homeless man from before who was complaining about the signal and all of that. Because apparently, as the cops stated earlier on, the the ghouls do not want to hurt anybody directly. That's not their goal. So when somebody finds out what's going on, their goal isn't, well, kill them. What ends up happening is they try to convert them. But then, again, at the raid, they were killing random people. Yeah, because those are large groups. It's individuals. Like, the large group that is actively seeking them out to destroy them, the people that we know get converted aren't part of those groups. But we also saw them killing random people that were just at the, that were just homeless. Right, because who runs that that shantytown? The church. The church is not real. It is a front for this anti-ghoul activist force. That's what they're rating. Not just because there's homeless people who don't contribute to their plan, but because this area is run by the anti-ghoul activists. So they're large groups of people who are actively looking to thwart them. Yes, they're going to take force against them. But on an individual basis, if they can convert you, they will. They would prefer that before killing you. They're trying to make money, and they think what they're doing is best for everybody. So we find out that they are interdimensional aliens. Yes. So it's not, I mean, they are coming from another planet, but like it is more about dimensions. Right. It's it, that's, that's another reason that they are a reflection of this malformed humanity. And not just weird monsters. Yeah, this this homeless guy is kind of showing them all around, and he takes them down to see where they are uh, filming news station stuff. Yes. Because they're looking for the signal. Right. They know that the signal that keeps everyone hypnotized is coming from the news station, and now they're there. 
and they kill the guards and then dude homeless dude teleports away and they leave the guns they don't take their guns yeah which is really weird uh yeah when they're like running up the hallways and up the stairs and stuff like that piper gets runs out of bullets in his assault rifle and tosses it and pulls out a handgun and then kills two dudes that are carrying rifles and then doesn't pick up those rifles and now all he has is a pistol mhm and they run into the lady Yes. Which is not surprising because she works for the station and- They were looking for her at one point. They're actively seeking her out. Yeah, and at the meeting, they had said, just do your normal routine so that you don't draw attention to yourself. Yes. So it would make sense that she would be at the TV station. Yeah. But I mean, it's very obvious that she's going to end up betraying them. Yes. It's painfully obvious. As Piper runs off- up the stairs to get to the roof where the satellite is that's sending out all this signal. She puts a gun to Keith David's head and kills him. Piper doesn't know about it because there's guns going off. You know, of course there are. And it isn't until he gets to the, to the, to the roof and then she joins him that he realizes that she has betrayed them. I mean, it's the same exact thing that the homeless guy says. It's just like, you can't win. Like there's nothing we're going to be able to do to stop them. So you might as well join them. Yeah. You can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And I mean, most people in this world have a price. So, so Piper shoots her. He kills her. The only human that he kills in the entire movie. Everyone he kills in the movie is a, is a ghoul, except for Holly. But he's able to... Shoot the satellite dish as well as he gets just lit up by this helicopter that's been flying around here. The helicopter explodes, and as he dies, he flips off the ghouls. And it's kind of a weak, because he's dying, kind of <laughs> kind of middle finger. That's what you know, Piper's apparently only regrets, is that he wished it was a stronger bird, you know? The signal, obviously, is destroyed, and people start to wake up, and then they see the ghouls. <laughs> That are like their friends and lovers. <sighs> and then you get a topless shot for the like one of the last scenes in the movie where the girl's having sex with this guy. And then that's when the signal goes out and she sees she's having sex with one of the ghouls and she freaks out. <laughs> what's wrong, baby? Hey, what's wrong, baby? And that's the end of the movie. Lightning round. This is also very similar to World's End, the plot of World's End, where the aliens have fake humans in the midst of real humans and they're trying to get conformity. I thought that was pretty interesting. One of the taglines was very long. It was, you see them on the street, you watch them on TV, you might even vote for one this fall. You think they're people just like you. You're wrong, dead wrong. And you can see how some people might interpret that as applying to things other than what Carpenter was talking about. But he does explicitly tell people, and the text itself explicitly says what it is that he's talking about. But he says you might even vote for one this fall because there was the elections that year. And talking about, you know, this was a political issue. Reaganomics is named after President Reagan. So when Keith David is like, let me take you to a place they've got hot showers and good food, I automatically thought of the YMCA. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Young man. It's fun to stay at the YMCA. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> That's all I can think about. 
in one of the TV shows that's playing in a bar. A ghoul commentator is talking about how films are destroying society and how you just need to, like, get along with people and not cause any controversy. Quote, filmmakers like George A. Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint is the line that's given Really? That. Yeah. Uh-huh. All the sex and violence on the screen has gone too far for me. I'm fed up with it. Filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. They're simply... I don't really get the title. That's a good question, now that you mention it. It's a weird title. It is a weird title. You really have to twist logic around for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. I can see how you could, but I, I honestly, I think it just it's a throwback to 50s horror, you know, where the, you just put the exclamation point at the end of something. Like, them! What is it, them? Is it them or they, where it's just a bunch of giant ants? Them. Them, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's it's kind of a throwback to that. That's everything I had. What do you think They Live got on Rotten Tomatoes? 89. 85. A politically subversive blend of horror and sci-fi, They Live is an underrated genre film from John Carpenter. Now, that doesn't mean it's universally popular, nor does it mean that 85 is the score that people gave it. It's just 85% of reviews are generally positive. The average rating that this movie got on uh, that's reflected on Metacritic is 54. Wow. Which means that the people who didn't like it really didn't like it and or the people who did like it just kind of liked it okay. So what do you think it should have gotten? Do you think uh, Metacritic is underrated? Rotten Tomatoes is overrated? Exactly. Okay. What would you give it? A 79. I think it's very good, but it's got that long-ass fight scene that I couldn't stand. And it's a little goofy and a little silly. Yeah, but I think you need to consider that that is camp. And I think there's value to that camp. Enough value to give it one more point. I will give They Live an 80. Okay. Yeah, I really, really enjoy They Live. Just because it's a fun movie to watch. It's full of... Awesome quotable lines and fun scenes, and it has something important to say at the same time that it's being silly. And I'm okay with that. I like it a lot, 80%. Ironically, we gave it a lower score than the Rotten Tomatoes score. But again, they don't correlate exactly, so I'm sorry. It's just the way we work. Would it take too long to look up what we gave society? We gave society a 68 and a 69. Do you regret that now? Do you think we should have given society a higher score? Or do you think we should give They Live a lower score? No, I'm fine with the way it is. Yeah. I'm interested in comparing our scores. That does interest me. But I don't think when we come up with our scores, we should necessarily be trying to figure out where it fits in. No, I know. We, we give a movie a score based on its own merits. And then it's interesting to find out how it how it relates to other movies that we scored. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That is 1988's. They live. Before we move on to our next movie, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. It's another real easy question. Okay. The killer in 1970s The Bird with the Crystal Plumage wears what color gloves? Okay, so now I'm conflicted. (laughs) 
My instinct would be to say black, but they could also be brown. But sometimes they ask these really specific and obvious questions, and the answer is the obvious answer. They do that a lot. Black. They are black. There we go. Okay, good. It's a very easy question. <laughs> Kelsey. Yeah. In Oculus 2014, what does Kaylee mistakenly believe she has bitten into when she bites into an apple? I thought the question was going to be, what did she, she bought into the, by, by, oh, a light bulb. Yes. Yes. She didn't actually bite into that light bulb. It was the reverse of what it actually appeared to be. She thought she bit into a light bulb thinking it was an apple. It was the actually the reverse. It's, it's twists within twists, man. <laughs> hey, I like that movie. It's great. I love Oculus. It's awesome. All right. Moving on to our next film, 2002's Signs, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, starring Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix, Rory Culkin, Abigail Breslin, Cherry Jones, and M. Night Shyamalan. Kelsey, what is Signs about? An ex-priest from a small town, his wife has died and caused him to lose his faith. And this is like six months later after that, and aliens show up, and this man has to defend his farm. Yeah, it is the entire film, <laughs> the whole thing is from the perspective of this family. It's an alien invasion from the perspective of one family. Should people watch it? I think so. I think so, too. It's certainly not a perfect movie. It's it not. It certainly has lots of problems, but I think it's an important movie for the genre. So. I sometimes feel like a good Shyamalan movie, like his first three major motion pictures, were like made specifically for me <laughs> sometimes. They're very, very deliberate. With the cinematography, with the way everything's laid out, with the blocking, set design, all of that. I always know exactly what I'm supposed to be looking at and why. He communicates a lot through the camera and you have time to absorb all of it because it's very deliberate and it takes its time. It's almost like if it's like if Wes Anderson decided to make a horror movie, but like maybe with a different color palette than he normally uses. It is very deliberate and very specific and uh almost I I don't mean perfect in the way of everything is every choice is, that is made is the right choice. I mean perfect in that everything is straight and thought about and I laid in a particular position because it's supposed to be and and Every shot drags out exactly long enough to make everything about it tense from the word go. I can agree with that assessment, but I think that the difference is that when you're watching a Wes Anderson movie, it's supposed to be not subtle and it's supposed to be in your face. And that's kind of part of its charm. Yeah. Whereas I don't see any reason why a horror movie can't have that same charm. Oh, I do. Why? You can't be kitschy in a horror movie. Sure you can. This movie was funny. You laughed out loud multiple times while we were watching it. That's not what I mean by kitschy. (laughs) I mean that Wes Anderson wants you to be well aware of every choice he's making. Yeah. And so it's very in your face. 
And I feel like horror needs to be more subtle than that if you want me to take it seriously. No, I mean, this is what I'm talking about when I say I know exactly what I'm supposed to be looking at and why. That's exactly what you said about Wes Anderson. Yes. I I think it's the same thing here. Now, just because I know what I'm supposed to be looking at and why I'm supposed to be looking at it, that doesn't mean I know where he's going to go with it. Those are two different things. Not knowing what the future is going to hold and knowing why I'm supposed to be looking at something are not mutually exclusive. Those two things can happen at the same time and they do not undermine each other. And I think that's one of the things that Shyamalan knows and executes to to good effect and kind of forgets as time goes on. And that's why he starts making garbage fucking movies. But Wes Anderson is fine with you knowing you're watching a movie. I think Shyamalan is as well. I'm saying he shouldn't be. I disagree. I think that that is a very bold statement to make about an entire genre of cinema and that you cannot subvert that. I feel like unless you're going for a campy feel, like they live, it's fine that it's not very subtle. It's in your face uh because they have a message and they have a reason for handling it that way. Whereas here, I really do think he was trying to make a good movie Uh and he didn't quite know how I feel like. The Sixth Sense is a lot more smooth around the edges, whereas this one, it started to get kind of angular because he wanted everything very perfect, and, yeah. it, and therefore it's kind of splintering out into no, the but audience's I, But face. see, that's the thing. I like that. I, I appreciate that, and I enjoy that, and it so it obviously works. You can't say it doesn't work when I'm sitting here telling you it worked on me. Like, it obviously does work. You could say that it's not what you're looking for, but I think that's that's different than horror movies should not be deliberate. Like, that's a very bold statement to make. I think that, like I said, horror movies like this that are just trying to tell you a story shouldn't be so deliberate. I think that's a little reductive of this movie. I think Signs is about a family and the alien invasion is what they go through, but it's not what the movie's about. It's about yeah, but I don't like what else it's about. <laughs> I know. What what this movie is about? It's a it's saying that what's actually horrific about the scenario is that Mel Gibson's character lost his faith. That's the horror. The aliens are just the setting. It's the setting in which they tell that horror. And I think it should be the opposite. I can understand that. I can totally understand that. Either way, we both think you should watch Science if you haven't seen it already. And you know what? If you've seen it already, watch it again. I think you'll be surprised with just how good it is. I like it a lot. Probably not as good as Sixth Sense. No. But but I still like it a lot. Sixth Sense, I don't know if he'll ever get back up to that. What was his last one that we really, really liked? Not The Visit. It was the one after that. Oh, Split. Yeah. Split was pretty phenomenal. And then we didn't even see Glass. Glass. We heard it was terrible. Yeah, which is a bummer because Unbreakable. But unsurprising. Yeah. Unbreakable is, you know, it's in in that first three movies that I like so much. It's pretty good. Yeah. I really like Signs. I really like The Village. So fuck it. Still never seen The Village. So fuck all (laughs) y'all. 
They don't. It's not that they don't have problems. They have lots of problems. I still really like right. them. I think that's a misconception that people have that you have to 100% like everything about a movie in order to say you like it. Because we have this, we have this kind of culture now where it's important to tear things down and analyze things. And that's why when we talk about these movies, we talk about the good and we talk about the bad at the same time. So we don't think our job here is to just critique everything and say that everything about a movie is bad and the only way a movie could be good is if it has no bad things about it. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, We find a lot to enjoy about even the worst movies. You don't think I have fun ranting and raving about lesbian undead vampire angels? Because I do. It's fun just saying that. (laughs) Anyway... Anyhow, you could take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2002's Signs. What can make geometric shapes the size of a football field? What kind of machine can bend a stock of corn over without breaking it? Can't be by hand. It's too perfect. Some animals around the county have been acting funny. Some of them violent. It's almost like they act when they smell a predator around. It is the reported crop side in that country in the last 72 hours. They're staying in the shadows. It's called probing to make sure things are all clear. Clear for what? For the rest of them. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? All right, Kelsey, how does signs begin? We have Mel Gibson waking up because he hears his children screaming. Joaquin Phoenix, who lives in like their little barn. Like it's like a garage apartment, you know, like an over the garage apartment, like the Fonz. They they both come out and they get because they heard him screaming and they run out into the cornfields and they find Abigail Breslin, who's like, are you in my dream, too? So she's, like, barely awake. And they find Rory Culkin. It is Rory, yes. right? It is Rory Culkin. And he says, I think God did it. And they see that there is corn stalks bent down. So they have a crop circle on their hands. Bum, bum, bum. And there's dogs out there and they're just barking their their heads off. Yeah, and they immediately think that it's Lionel Pritchard, <laughs> which is their their neighbor's son and his and his buddies. Yes. They think that, that, that he did that at first, at least. Yes. They get back to the house and their dog, Houdini, um, peed himself and is sick. So they take him outside. And we learn that Abigail Breslin has this thing where whenever she drinks water, she thinks it tastes contaminated. And so she goes to give the water to the dog and he barks at her and like snarls and like almost bites her. When Mel Gibson comes walking back again, I think they hear another scream. They find Houdini with this big thing in his neck that Rory Culkin- Rory Culkin was using to make meat on the on the grill. 
Yeah, because just for context, Mel Gibson, Graham Hess was talking to Cherry Jones, Officer Paskey, and they were out looking at the crop circle, and Rory Culkin's character, Morgan, was taking care of the barbecue, and when all this dog stuff went down, and the dog went to attack Abigail Breslin, Bo, and so Rory could only do something with what he actually had on hand and ended up trying to protect Bo and stabbing and killing the dog. Yeah, and as Chris says, uh, he was talking to the officer and she said that animals have been acting funny all over the county. They've been violent and edgy and on alert as, as if a predator is there. Yeah. So then that night, Mel Gibson is woken up again by Abigail Breslin just standing there staring at him, which uh-huh. kids do yes. all the time. I, I did, did it. That. I did, did it. it. Yeah. Yep. It's amazing that I would just stand there and and then I, on my mom's side of the bed and then her eyes would just open and she'd be, hey, what's up? Like, she just knew I was there. I didn't make any noise. I just stood there. <laughs> so weird. So he wakes up and he's like, what's wrong? And she's like, there's a monster outside my bedroom. Can I have a glass of water? (laughs) She is adorable in this. She is. Could you imagine that in just a few years, you would get to see her do a strip tease? (laughs) She's still adorable. Sorry. That's a that's a little Miss Sunshine reference if you haven't seen the movie. Yeah, she doesn't actually strip. No. <laughs> oh, we should also get out of the way here as we're talking about who the actors and actresses actually are, that Mel Gibson is a fucking douche nozzle. It's a curse. And it's really unfortunate because honestly, I think, uh, depending on the movie, he can be a very good actor. And it just really sucks that he turned out to be such an awful person. Who um, said it last night? There's no such thing as heroes anymore. Was that you? I did. I said it. We were we were at a friend's house last night, and I can't remember who we were talking about. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought, yeah, there's no such... You just can't have any heroes anymore, because they're going to turn out to be awful people. Yeah. Like, it really fucking sucks. Not that Mel Gibson would be a hero of mine, but... He could be awesome, and I could really like him, but I just can't like him anymore. I grew up watching his movies. Mm-hmm. My parents fucking love Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon is great. <laughs> it's, the series is ridiculous, but it's still also great. Mad Max. Yeah. Fucking dickhead. Mm-hmm. Ruining that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I should also say, more importantly, ruining the lives of other people who are close to him and... You know, making things worse for entire cultures of people. So, <laughs> fuck that douche nozzle Mel Gibson. We'll say it right now, and we won't talk about it again. Okay. And he goes, well, what's wrong with the water sitting at your bedside? And she says, it tastes old. <laughs> she has an excuse for everyone. Later on, when she's in, uh, in the living room, and he's like, what's wrong with this one? And she says... There's a hair in There's it. There's a hair in it. Yeah, okay, what's wrong with this one? Yeah. And the last one, it's he, dust. he says, yeah, dust or whatever. Yeah. And then what's wrong with this one? Oh, Morgan drank from it. It has his amoebas in it. <laughs> you take a glass of water and you finish it. Now, what's wrong with this one? It has dust in it. This one? A hair. This one? Morgan took a sip and has his amoebas in it. Bo is a adorable in this and like really stellar for such a young kid 
I she did a really good job. That's the thing about M. Night Shyamalan is, you know, after all the stuff I said about how, like, specific and, like, this is for me and how, like, well-made his movies are, he, for whatever reason, has no idea how to write kids that aren't totally weird. And, I mean, there's something intriguing about that and interesting, but, like, every one of his kids in every one of his movies are just so bizarre. Never saw Avatar. Yeah, well, maybe that's not a, a great example of that because it's it has source material. But that movie's garbage. <laughs> you actually seen it? <laughs> I've seen so much of it, but I've never sat down and seen it, you know, end to end. So when he's putting her to bed, she asks him, why do you talk to mom when you're by yourself? And he says that he misses her. And she asks him, does she ever answer you? And he says, no, she doesn't. And she goes, she never answers me either. You know, I gotta say, every time I see that scene, I always wonder what he's going to say when asked that question. Because he could easily lie to make her feel better. But then you don't think sometimes about the downstream effects of that and how her next, you know, he didn't know that she talks to her. And so if he ever said, yes, she does respond, imagine how that would feel for her because she tries talking to her mom and her mom never responds. That could have really messed with her. Instead, he chooses to be brutally honest with her. And it's like, you know what? This sucks, but you and I were here together and we can get through it. I think he's a pretty good dad despite the fact that he's so bitter. He's a pretty great dad. Yeah. Some things don't go so great, but... He really tries, and he tries to do what's best for his kids. But then he sees someone outside in the cornfield again, out in the window. And so he goes and gets Joaquin Phoenix. Well, he sees him on the roof. Oh, on the roof. Yeah, uh uh-huh. So he goes and gets Joaquin Phoenix. And Joaquin Phoenix is, we haven't even said this, is his brother. Yeah. Which I don't believe it for a second. (laughs) So I did the math. At the time of making the movie, Joaquin Phoenix was 28. Mel Gibson was 46, so there is an 18-year difference between these two brothers. Is it unheard of? No. There have been parents out there who their kid graduates high school and then they get pregnant again. It is not common, but it does happen. It's just a little weird. It's never commented on. It adds character to the setting and the people, but what's the point in examining it any further, I guess? (laughs) And he's just like, you know, it's got to be Lionel Pritchard. We've got to scare the shit out of him. So let's run out there and let's be crazy. (laughs) Oh, God, this is so great. Mel Gibson is just like, explain crazy. (laughs) Make loud noises. Explain loud noises. (laughs) Because Mel Gibson, you know. He's so nervous. He used to be a priest. So, like, he never behaves this way. And it's very strange for him. And Joaquin Phoenix is like, curse. And he's like, it doesn't sound real when I curse. (laughs) Before they run out, he tells Mel Gibson it's time for an ass whooping. Yeah. Well, he says that, like, really early on. (laughs) Graham says Lionel Pritchard and the Wolfington brothers are back. And Meryl says it's time for an ass whooping. And then they have this whole conversation conversation of explain crazy act crazy and all of that it's time for an ass whooping this is not an intelligent way to approach this lee is a friend of mine this is his son yeah we'll be doing me a favor all right listen we both go outside 
move around the house in opposite directions. We act crazy, insane with anger, make them crap in their pants, force them around till we meet up on the other side. Explain that crazy. You know, curse and stuff. Want me to curse? You don't mean it. It's just for show. What? It won't be convincing. It doesn't sound natural when I curse. Just make noises, then. Explain noises. Are you going to do this or what? Yeah, and so they run out, and Meryl comes out going, we're going to beat your ass. <laughs> we're going to tear your you're gonna tear your head off. And Graham's saying, ah, I'm insane with anger. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. Time for an ass movie. <laughs> Ah! I'm insane with anger! We're gonna beat your ass, bitch! We're gonna tear your head off! I'm losing my mind! It's time for an ass whooping! And when they meet each other on the other end, the first thing Graham says to Meryl is, I cursed. <laughs> and Meryl says, I heard. <laughs> and then they're wondering, like, what happened, and they hear sounds up on the roof. And so they look up, and this is when Meryl's like, Are, are you sure this is Lionel Pritchard? And then it disappears, but they see that the swing set is moving, and then they hear it running through the cornfields. And they're just like, how could he have gotten from the roof down all the way out here without us seeing it? And how could he have done it so fast? Yeah. And this, by the way, is an explicit reference to E.T., a swing set moving and rustling through the fields. That's that's E.T., man. So they call... The same officer over again the next day. At first, Mel Gibson is kind of distracted <laughs> because Abigail Breslin has left these cups all over the house and mm -hmm. he's he's trying to pick them all up. And while he's out doing that, the lady is talking to Joaquin Phoenix and she's just like, you know, I think it's really great that you came out here to live with him while after his, his wife died mm -hmm. to help. And he's like, I don't really think I'm helping much. And she takes a look at Rory Culkin, who's sitting there, distracted by the walkie-talkies, because she says she's going to get him walkie-talkies. Yeah. They're playing with the with the baby monitors instead. She's like, I'll get you some real walkie-talkies back at the station, but for now, you, this is like a one-way walkie-talkie. And she looks at him, and she looks at Joaquin Phoenix, and she says, you are. Mm -hmm. Like, you're helping way more than you know. Yeah. So Mel Gibson comes back in. She asks them, what did you see? And they're like, it was really dark. I didn't really see uh -huh. much. And she's like, anything. Was he short? Was he tall? Well, he definitely wasn't short. So he was tall. Uh, it was really <laughs> dark. <laughs> and she's just like, okay. And Joaquin Phoenix keeps re referring to him as a guy. She's like, well, it could be a girl. And he's like, no, it couldn't have been. And she's like, excuse me, I've seen the Olympics. Yeah. There are women who have done crazy Scandinavian things. Scandinavian women <laughs> jumping over 20 feet. And he's over. like, okay, excluding um, Scandinavian Olympians, I what, don't think yeah, it was Yeah, what her. else might be a possibility? And she's like, I don't appreciate the sarcasm. <laughs> excluding the possibility that a female Scandinavian Olympian was running around outside our house last night, what else might be a possibility? I'm not done asking questions, and I don't appreciate sarcasm. And it's really funny because then coming back to that, a, a few lines or minutes later, Meryl's going to talk again. He's like, all right, I was out of line <laughs> about the Scandinavian Olympian thing. Okay, I was out of line with the whole female Scandinavian Olympian thing. But I'm pretty fast, and I'm pretty strong, 
And this guy did stuff that I could never have done. Yeah. In walks Abigail Breslin. And he's like, what are you doing, honey? And she's like, I I can't find the remote. And he's like, well, just turn the channel by getting up and standing. And she's like, the same show is on every station. Yeah. So they go out there to look at it and they see. Just lights in the sky. Yes, lights in the sky. The lady who works for the police is just like, you know, get your mind off of this. You've got young children. You you just lost your wife six months ago. You don't need this right now in your life. Mm-hmm. So just forget about everything and take them into town for a fun day. He's like, okay. So they do. And when they get there, Rory and Abigail are given money to go to the bookstore to buy yeah. a book. Joaquin Phoenix goes off to wander, and Mel Gibson goes in to order them a pizza. So he tells everybody, come back in, like, 20 minutes or whatever. Yeah. So Joaquin Phoenix, for whatever reason, wanders into the military... Like the recruitment center. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And in there is this dude, and he's just like, I've got it all figured out. He's like, you do? And he's like, yeah, it's called probing. They're out here to 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 look at us, to to see what's going on, mm-hmm. to test the waters before they can invade. I've had two separate folks tell me there've been strangers around these parts last couple nights. Can't tell what they look like because they're staying in the shadows, covert like. Nobody's been hurt, mind you, and that's the giveaway. I see. It's called probing. It's a military procedure. You send out a reconnaissance group, very small, check things out. Not to engage, but to evaluate the situation. Evaluate the level of danger. Make sure things are all clear. Clear for what? For the rest of them. And Joaquin Phoenix is just like, oh my god, that's terrifying. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the guy's like, I recognize yeah, you. Yeah, you play baseball, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, don't you have the record for the most home runs? He's like, yeah. He has two of them. Yeah. No, he, and he has a total of five records that he's oh, talking is that about. It? Yeah, uh-huh. He's like, holy shit. Why aren't you playing in the majors, making tons of money and having girls suck on your toes or whatever it is that he says? <laughs> Why weren't you in the pros making stacks of cash and getting your toes licked by beautiful women? And we hear the voice of Michael Showalter wearing a leather vest or a jean vest. I can't remember. He's supposed to be Lionel Pritchard, uh, say, because he has another record that nobody knows about, which is the league uh, strikeouts record. Because he was just too dumb not to swing at everything. He just swung his heart out as hard as he could every single pitch. And so he would strike out all the time. Merrill's response to that is, it just didn't seem right not swinging. Merrill's a class A screw-up. He would just swing that bat as hard as he could every time. Didn't matter what the coaches said. Didn't matter who was on base. He would just whip that bat through the air as hard as he could. Looked like a lumberjack chopping down a tree. Merrill here has more strikeouts than any two players. You really got the strikeout record? Felt wrong not to swing. And so he puts down the recruitment thing and walks out. Back at the bookstore, 
the kids are asking for a book about extraterrestrials. And they're like, oh, we don't have anything like that. And then the woman working there is like, actually, you know what? I think we do have one in case city people came looking for it. Yeah, and she knows exactly which book it is and where it is on the shelf. And it's the second book on the left or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Which aren't good directions, by the way. If you think about the layout of this place, which side of the aisle? You know, and second book on the left as I'm walking over there or as I would be walking back. (laughs) And then my left changes. So anyway. Meanwhile, Mel Gibson is over at the pharmacy picking up medicine for his son who has asthma. And the girl working there, I knew her. Tracy Abernathy is the is is the character's name. The actress's name is Merritt Weaver. She's been in I knew her. A bunch of things. She was in Birdman. She's in The Walking Dead. Oh, she was uh she was on Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. She was like an assistant or something. Also, The Wire. She's in Series 7. That's right. She's the teenager. She's in Series 7. Yeah. If you haven't seen Series 7, The Contenders, it's basically the (laughs) book story of The Running Man, (laughs) uh, where everyone's running around in the real world and they have, but it mixed with Battle Royale, where the last person alive is the victor. It's an interesting sort of comedy drama. It's very good. With that premise. It's very funny. I can't think of The Love Will Tear Us Apart (laughs) without thinking of that movie. (laughs) Yep. Love. Love will tear us apart again. (laughs) So he's talking to her because she works behind the counter. And she's just like, I really need to get some things off my chest, father. And he's like, it's not father anymore. And she's like, Everyone's talking about this as if it's the end of the world. I need to talk to you. And he's like, that's really not what I do anymore. And then she just launches into it. Uh Uh-huh. And we find out that she's, like, said 71 curse words in, like, the past week or whatever. He has to define what a curse word is. Yeah. Is douchebag a curse? And he's like, well, I guess that depends on the context. (laughs) She says, she calls somebody a douchebag or whatever. For going out for somebody with somebody else. Yeah, and he's like, that's a curse. Oh, well, then in that case, it's 70 whatever times. 71. (laughs) And this whole time he's just standing there. Like, I can't believe this is happening right now. And then you just see, like, a dude's head just pop up from behind (laughs) Mel Gibson. Because he's in line behind him waiting to check out. Like, that's... Perfect framing. It is a perfect visual joke. Perfect. (laughs) So then they're sitting down for pizza and they're just like, you know, let's not talk about this anymore. And I don't remember if this conversation happened at the pizza place or if it happened when they got home. But basically, Rory Culkin is talking about all this stuff that they're going to that the aliens could do to them. And Joaquin Phoenix goes, look. All this crop circle crap was made up by nerds who can't get girlfriends. <laughs> yes. This is when they're in the car as they pull up to the house. Oh, okay. At, on the way home. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he keeps talking about, like, nerds who can't get girlfriends. So and I have it. He says, this crop stuff is just about a bunch of nerds who never had girlfriends their whole lives. They're, like, 30 now. <laughs> they make up secret codes and analyze <laughs> Greek mythology and make secret societies where other guys who never had girlfriends can join in. They do stupid crap like this to feel special. It's a scam. <laughs> nerds were doing it 25 years ago, and new nerds are doing it again. <laughs> 
And then Graham says, it's just static, Morgan, frequency. And then the weird noises come through the baby monitor, which is what they're listening to and what uh, Morgan is freaking out about. And then Morgan says, it's a code. And then Bo says, why can't they get girlfriends? (laughs) Perfect timing and delivery. (laughs) So good. It's so funny. And and Joaquin Phoenix is like, this is what they want. <laughs> they want us listening in and wondering what it is. <laughs> but then it gets scary, and it sounds like someone's talking, but like not. It's in- like a chittering noise. Yes, yeah. and that's when they stop, and they're just like, oh shit. Joaquin Phoenix and Mel Gibson are still trying to like ignore it. And Rory's like, you heard the voices. And Abigail Breslin goes, I heard them. (laughs) (laughs) And so they climb up on top of the on top of the van to get like better reception to hear stuff. And they do. And that's when Joaquin Phoenix. So Mel Gibson is like, we need to let go. This is stupid. And Joaquin Phoenix goes, no, don't. You're going to end the frequency. Yeah, because they're all holding hands. And that's what's making it. Yeah. (laughs) Metaphors, people. Yes. So that night, Graham and Meryl have kind of an important conversation. They- Wait, but before that. Okay. Before that. Yeah. He, <laughs> Mel Gibson hears sounds. So he goes outside and Isabel, their dog, is like cowering. And he goes, Isabel, you're going to feel very silly when this all turns out to be all make-believe. Like, yeah. He, he so desperately wants to keep himself under the uh-huh. belief that this is not real, that he talks to the dog. There are a couple of moments where he's talking. It, it's kind of like you walk into a room or you're just sitting in your room silently or whatever. I don't know if anyone else does this. I have absolutely done this before. I've been like... I know you can hear me or whatever, (laughs) you know, just in case somebody is listening in. I've absolutely done that before (laughs) Uh, or thought about it in my brain. I know you can read my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is that compels people to do that, but it's the same thing. He does it several times when he's talking to Pritchard uh, and Pritchard's not really there when he's talking to the dog. And obviously the dog can't understand him. Uh, he does it later when he pretends to be a police officer. Like, it's just, it's really funny hearing him try to increase his own confidence by talking to people who aren't really there. Mm-hmm. So they end up turning on the TV and Rory Culkin is like, we have to tape this. This could be really important or whatever. So he grabs a tape and Abigail Breslin tears it out of his hands and she goes, my ballet recital. And he goes on this whole speech about, like, how important this is going to be, how our children's children will need to see this. Yeah. And she just says, my ballet recital. <laughs> and he turns to dad and he's like, dad. And he just goes, find another tape. <laughs> and it ends up being the swimsuit collection or, that yeah, Joaquin did, Phoenix yeah. did. So they tape it. And then eventually they all go to bed. And this is when they have a conversation. Yes. So they're talking about basically fate. Right? Predeterminism, that sort of thing. Merrill's asking Graham about it and what he believes. And Graham says, people break down into two groups. And this is kind of the thesis of the entire movie. And for the people that are like, I don't know, I'm turned off by this because it's kind of all about God and about faith in God. And that's not really my thing. It's not my thing either. I am absolutely not religious. Again, we're talking about a movie that's about God. A lot of horror movies are about God. Have you noticed that? 
anyway, I think it's people. I think it's perfectly reasonable to still enjoy a premise that is endorsing like a godly way of life without actually being religious yourself. It could still be interesting. I find this very interesting. But anyway, Graham says, when they experience something lucky, group number one sees it as more more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign. He says the title, you wins the movie. Evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck. Happy turn of chance. I'm sure the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights in a very suspicious way. For them, this situation is a 50-50. Could be bad. Could be good. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. There's a whole lot of people in the group number one. When they see those 14 lights. They're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever's going to happen, there'll be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. See, what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? And that's laid out for you. This is what the movie's about. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? And it's one of the things I really like about Shyamalan, and I talk about how deliberate he is. It's not like a movie, like in ghost stories, where you get little hints throughout, but you have no idea that they're hints until later. And then in retrospect, you're supposed to recognize that they were hints. There is something that can be powerful about that. But what Shyamalan does is he shows you things and tells you through the language of cinema that... This is important. You have no idea what this is about, but that's okay. We will come back to this later. He specifically tells you that through the camera. And I really appreciate that because then when something does happen, I'm like, oh, no, yeah, that's that thing that we were talking about early and it does interconnect as opposed to with ghost stories when that movie turns. And now I have to scramble to think about all the things that might have been little Easter eggs throughout the movie. Like. There is value to both. But I feel like I connect more with the movie that's like, hey, this is important. We'll come back to it later. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, this is important. We'll come back to it later. Uh, Do we even really explicitly talk about the fact that Graham's wife died? And that's, I mean, you mentioned that's why Meryl came back, but we didn't talk about it. This is the moment where Graham talks about what his wife's last words were. And there's an argument that she's fridged in this movie. We've talked about fridging in the past where you kill off a female character just to act as motivation for a male character. There's an argument to be made that Graham's wife is fridged in this. 
she does have an important role to play, but she's only in flashbacks. So if you feel that way, I can totally understand that. But he tells him what her last words were, and he gets he kind of paraphrases it. She told me to see, and she said for you to swing away. In her last moments, she thought she was at one of your baseball games. No, I don't think that there is a God. Well, he said that after Phoenix told a story about why he's a miracle man. As he put it, he believes in miracles. He's a miracle yeah. man. And I think that gives even more weight to Mel Gibson's story because after hearing his brother tell him, I totally believe in God, I totally believe in signs, miracles, what have you, then he's just like, well, this really shitty thing happened to me. So no, I don't fucking believe in this shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We didn't mention either as a as an example of this is obviously important. You don't know why. You don't need to know why yet. We will come back to it. To have like confidence in a film it happened while they were out and they were eating in this in the town. They saw M Night Shyamalan's character. You see the director and the writer. He's getting in his car and they're watching him. And nobody's saying any, saying anything other than is that him? Yeah, that's him. Abigail Breslin's like, who is he? Nobody answers her. Shyamalan turns and, and looks as he's getting in his car and he sees them and he pauses. And then he gets in his car and he drives away. And we don't know who he is, but he's obviously important. We come to find out later that he's the man who hit and killed Graham's wife. Later on... Because the TV is bothering the kids, they decide to turn the TV back on. Because the TV is bothering the kids, Meryl moves it into the closet underneath the stairs like he's fucking Harry Potter or something. Graham is like watching it with him and they're talking about how well, the lights disappeared, but people think they're still there. Like there's an invisible force field. A bird flew into it and fell to the ground. That's why they think that they're still there. So they have some sort of cloaking technology. And they think that the signs, the crop circles that they've been making are like a visual map. Yes. For them to see from the skies. Yeah. And that's when Mel Gibson's just like, fuck this, and just leaves him. And then Mel and Meryl keeps talking to himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny. And then they get a call. Graham answers the phone and he just hears Shyamalan's voice say, father, and then some rustling and then hanging up. Mel Gibson goes to the closet, he opens the closet, he grabs his coat, and he says loudly, I'm going to Ray Reddy's house, uh, I think something might be wrong, and he walks away, and then Meryl leans out, because <laughs> you completely forget that's the closet that Meryl's sitting in, it's just perfect visual comedy for this type of movie. It's not, I don't think Shyamalan should necessarily be making comedies, but for this type of movie it makes sense. And it's just perfect framing, and I love it. But he goes to Ray Reddy's house. While he's gone, they show on television footage that some people consider to be the scariest moment in this movie, and one of the scariest moments in horror cinema. Really, it's on a lot of, like, top 100 scariest moments lists. It's the Brazilian birthday party, where they're videotaping a bunch of kids in Brazil at a birthday party, but they're all excited. They're looking out the window. We hear in Portuguese, he's behind the garage. 
and the camera turns around and it looks down this this gap between these two buildings and it just stays there and all of a sudden the, an alien just comes walking into frame and walks by and everyone screams and Meryl's like <gasps> and he, that that's that perfect moment that one shot where he backs up and covers his mouth that everyone recognizes from this movie there's also the <laughs> Vamanos children <laughs> move children Vamanos <laughs> I do remember being in the theater and it making me jump. Yeah. And I think it was a really bold choice. To just show the alien? That, but also to make them look like the big heads, the, yeah, the long the skinny eyes, bodies. Yeah, uh-huh. I love the idea. I just love the idea that all those pictures that people came up with back in the 50s are, are based accurate. on actual aliens and uh-huh. that no one believed them yeah. i just love that i i love that concept and i love that he was willing to do it yeah also we should mention that it's around this time that rory culkin is looking at that book that he got yeah and, and he's in, now an expert on alien invasions at this point and inside the book there's this picture of a farmhouse on fire and three figures out dead in the yard yeah and they say it looks a little like our house. And then one of them says, that's weird. Yeah, like the windows are the same. Yeah, and that a lot of this stuff was like foreseen. We haven't also, we also haven't mentioned that Abigail Breslin, it's a very minor thing, but they do say a couple of times that she gets feelings about things and that she has dreams about things. Uh-huh. And she's she's basically telling them like something bad's going to happen. In fact, to Rory Culkin, she says, I don't want you to die. Yeah, and he's like, why would I die? Yeah, and the Um, implication is that she has dreamt about it. But they get tinfoil hats on that they make themselves. So that they can't melt their minds or read read their their minds. their minds or something like that. (laughs) And so we'll come back to that in a second. But Graham is at Ray Reddy's house, and he's looking around, and there doesn't appear to be anybody home. And he looks in in the window, and he sees furniture knocked over. And he turns around, and he sees Ray Reddy, M. Night Shyamalan, sitting in his in his car, in his van or whatever. With all his stuff in the back. Yeah, and just sitting in the driveway staring forward. And so Graham walks out there and is like, what's going on, Ray? And Ray calls him father. And then he talks about how Graham's wife died. And Graham tries to get him to stop. But he doesn't try in earnest. He's he's being overwhelmed. And he starts to kind of cry, which he does several times in the movie. And I got to say, Mel Gibson does a great job at Look, he's a good actor. Yeah, that's what do you the want? thing. What do you want? He's a good actor. In, in some doesn't mean he's, he's a, a good, good person. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, don't. Like, he just talks kind of softly because he can't. He doesn't feel comfortable bossing people around or whatever, unless they're his kids. And Ray tells the story about how he wasn't drunk. He fell asleep. And if it had been five seconds in either direction, he would have woken up in a ditch with a headache. But it specifically happened at this moment where he fell asleep, she was in the perfect spot to be rammed into a tree that just happened to be there. That's how she died. And he apologizes for what he's done to his family. I know I've hurt you. It's like the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Like, he hates himself for it. And then he says he's going to go to the lake. He doesn't think they like water very much. Because everywhere that they've shown... All the crop circles... All those signs are landlocked. Yeah, landlocked areas. And they're all over the world. Hundreds of them. And he's like, I don't, because of that, I don't think they like water. I'm going to go to the lake. 
and he's like, don't open my pantry. One got inside and I locked him in there. Don't open my pantry, father. I found one of them in there and locked him in. They're like, what the fuck? And then he just drives away. <laughs> oh, my God. And so Mel Gibson goes he could inside. Just, he could just leave, but he doesn't. He goes inside. And this is when he pretends to be a, a police officer. <laughs> and and like he's, it's better for him and his own mental well-being if this is all just Lionel Pritchard playing a practical joke. But it's not. <laughs> so he says things like, you know, oh, we already busted your pals. We took them away in a paddy wagon. And he stops. He's like, paddy wagon? <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, just make it easy on yourself, give yourself up, and we'll give you the same deal we gave them, or whatever. And this next moment is so fucking tense of him trying to look into the closet without opening it. He grabs the most mirror-esque knife I've ever seen. And that's, he uses it as a mirror. Yeah. Just to see what he can see. But he grabs, he grabs a weapon as... An, a, like a visual aid as a tool, not as a weapon, but it's still important that he has it there. And he's trying every which way to get under there and to see what's going on until eventually a hand comes out. And it's like a hand of one of the aliens that Meryl saw in the Brazilian birthday party video. And he freaks out and it's like grabbing at him from and underneath. Just chops and off his fingers. Chops off its fingers. <laughs> And he freaks out and he runs away and he yes. leaves, leaving the thing in there. And it screams and it's this horrible scream. <laughs> so he goes back home. And when he gets home, he sees Meryl with the two kids. And now Meryl has one of those. <laughs> so Rory has been saying all this shit out of the book all this time. And <laughs> Mel Gibson is like, uh, I heard a theory that they don't like water. Let's go. And Rory says, that sounds made up. <laughs> and he's like, fine, we'll vote on it. Meryl and Rory vote to stay. But Mel and Abigail vote to go to the water. And Mel says, well, I also count for your mother's vote. So that's yeah, three against um, I two. I represent two parents. And Rory shouts, that's bullshit. You're cheating. Uh -huh. And he's like, this is my house. I get to do what I want. And Abigail Breslin says, well, then I'm changing my vote. <laughs> and so they're going to stay. I mean, because the important part is that we haven't really mentioned is that all the appearances of these spaceships and the actual aliens on the ground all happen within a mile of the crop circles. And that's how we know that they're like a map. And it's also how we know they're appearing far from water and all this stuff. So they know they're going to be aliens nearby. They found one at Ray Reddy's house, so obviously. So they board up the entire place. Now, kind of importantly, they don't have enough boards to board up every window. So instead, they board up doors and, and into rooms. And at first, I was like, well, that's weird. They're boarding up the outside of the door. Because obviously it needs to be on the other side of where the aliens can get, but doors open into rooms. So, like, it's not going to prevent the door from opening up, but they do cover the whole thing top to bottom with boards. And they board the whole place up, and then, sure enough, aliens show up. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. The happening. Exactly. It's a sad thing, because I think it's a really good line. They start to hear the noises, and Mel Gibson just says, it's happening. 
It's yeah. so good. And now it's been ruined. By that happening? Shyamalan is an asshole. <laughs> How did he make that movie and think it was good? Yeah. We didn't talk about the dinner because in between boarding up the house and having dinner, they also are say they're going to bring in the the other dog, the one who's still alive. They're going to tie him up inside the garage or something like that later because they don't want him anywhere near them because the other dog freaked out the way it did. Uh, but they have dinner and Mel Gibson's like, what do you guys all want? Whatever you want. And they just make them whatever they want. Because in his mind. This might be our last night alive. Last, yeah. So he makes all these different meals, but then none of them are eating. Right. Because they're terrified. And so he gets mad at them. Well, they talk about how, aren't we going to say a prayer? And he's like, absolutely not. And he mentions that I've wasted so much of my life on this. I am not wasting another second with prayer. We're not saying a prayer. Bo has a bad feeling. I had a dream. We aren't saying a prayer. I am not wasting one more minute of my <laughs> life on prayer. Not one more minute. Understood? It's upsetting the kids, and he's like, you are eating, and you're eating now, because it's important to him that we have a normal dinner or whatever, but it's not happening, and he's getting desperate, and he's like, fine, then I'm having all your food, and he takes a little bit from everybody's plate, and he starts to tear it open, and he's like breaking down. And Abigail and Breslin is crying, and Rory Culkin says, I hate you. But eventually he gets up, and he comes over to him, because... He's he's his dad's crying and he goes and he goes to hug him and Mel Gibson grabs him and then he grabs Bo and brings her in and then he reaches out as far as he can and grabs Meryl by his shirt and hugs <laughs> him over and they all they all hug. And this is when the baby monitor goes off again. So they know they're nearby. And this is when he says it's happening and they're scurrying around on the roof and then they hear a window break and they hear shuffling around of furniture. So they know they're in the house in one of the rooms that has been boarded up. And they talk about how smart they are, you know, that they can figure it out. They'll find a way in. And so they go to the one place where there aren't any entryways except for the one, which is the basement. And so they go down in the, into the basement and they, they lock the door there. And then there's banging and banging and banging. Mel Gibson says, I think they have problems with doors because they locked one in a, there was one locked in a pantry and it couldn't get out. Right. But they're still banging away at the door until they, they realize they're not putting any pressure on. Yeah. It. They're not actually putting, exerting any effort, but they're still banging away. They're like it's a distraction. And then he realized this is a coal cellar. They would pour coal down in here from outside. So there's a vent somewhere around here that they can get in. And they're looking around and all they have is flashlights because Meryl accidentally shattered a, a light bulb. This scared me, I remember, when I first saw the, the movie. And they find uh, Rory Culkin's character, Morgan, up against the wall and they find the grate. He's standing in front of the grate and they're like, oh, shit. And then they see the hand move mm. because their hand, they can camouflage themselves. Mm -hmm. So the hand was camouflaged against the grate and then it reaches out and grabs them. And then there's a shuffle mm -hmm. and we see a flashlight fall and it rolls around and it points in another direction. And we don't see any of the shuffle. We just okay. hear it. We don't need to. It's a great shot. Yeah, it's fantastic. They manage to get Morgan free, but he's having an asthma attack or a minor asthma attack and they don't have 
the epinephrine shots, the EpiPen. And so Mel Gibson is sitting there with Morgan's back against his chest so they can breathe together. And he's trying to get him to calm down and breathe. And I don't have asthma. I've never seen an asthma attack in real life. But I've seen it obviously in on television and stuff like that. That's my only reference point. So I imagine it's very difficult to stop an asthma attack on its own. But they go and they do that. And while Graham is talking to his son to try to get this asthma attack to subside, I need you to relax. It'll stop. Breathe with me. Breathe with me. While this is happening, we see we see it partially from the side, not straight on, a side shot. But then we see for most of it, a very long shot of Meryl holding Bo watching this happen. And Meryl is freaking out. And he's like starting to tear up and cry. And we hear Graham talking, but we don't actually see it. And it's another, like, it's really fucking good. It's a very, very good shot to get you through this like really emotional moment. The attack kind of passes, but Morgan's not doing so well. And they fall asleep. And then in the morning, Meryl finds a new light bulb, and they can see, and they need to go upstairs. Well, no, they get the radio to work. Joaquin tells him uh, something happened. Most of them have left, but they've left their wounded behind. Yeah. They hear it on the TV. They describe it as a primitive method of defeating them. Yeah, but they, but they haven't been able to find out what it is yet. But which, I love that primitive method. Yeah, but also that's one of the most unbelievable parts <laughs> is the actual method to me is not unbelievable. I know a lot of people have a problem with it and I totally get that, but I don't. It's the fact that they knew there was a method to defeat them, but they weren't able to communicate what that method was for hours. Are you kidding me? It's bullshit. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. But in any case, he lays... Morgan down on the couch while Meryl's going to get the pen. He goes and he grabs the uh, the TV from out of the closet to bring in to find out what's going on. And as he pulls it in, you can see like it's so well framed, like so perfectly framed. You know exactly what's going on. Graham's wheeling the TV in and he looks in to his left, but not far enough to his left to see what Bo is looking at or to his right to see that Bo is even looking at something. And as he pulls the TV in, And sits down to look at it to turn it on, he can see in the reflection of the television the outline of one of these aliens. And he turns around, and there's the alien, and it's holding Morgan. And then he looks at its hand, and it's missing fingers. (laughs) This is the alien from the pantry, Ray Reddy's pantry, that he chopped his fingers off, and the aliens left behind their wounded. Mm -hmm. And the theory is... Dude gets out somehow and goes back to the place where the crop circle was to try to meet up with his buddies, but they had already left. Mm-hmm. And so now he's desperate and he he grabs Morgan and he's holding him and he has his hand over him. And we also know they have this poison gas. Mm-hmm. You see this little barb come out from under his, his wrist or what have you. And then Meryl comes in and sees the alien and drops the pen. This is the moment. Graham's freaking out. He cannot believe his son is in the hands of this alien. And we're zooming in on him, panicking. And then it transitions to another flashback. We've been getting flashbacks throughout this movie of him panicking because of his wife. It's at the scene of the accident. It's a heart-wrenching scene when he's talking to the police officer and she's explaining to him, we can't move her. 
We don't know why she's held on this long. She's going to die. We wanted you to be here so you could talk to her. But she is going to die. Do you do you hear what I am saying? And he's like, is this going to be the last time I talk to my wife? The truck. The truck has severed most of her lower half. What did you say? She won't be saved. Her body is pinned in such a way that it's alive when it shouldn't be alive. And the truck is holding her together. And she doesn't feel much. And she's, she's talking almost like normal. And we didn't pull the truck out because we, we want you to come down here and be with her as long as she's awake. And that won't be very long. Now, Father, do you understand what I've told you? Carolyn, this is the last time I'm going to talk with my wife. Yes, it is. Just, oh my God, my heart just shatters in its chest every time I hear that one line and it's perfectly structured after all the things the officer is saying to him and he's half listening because his mind is racing and the one question he has is this the last time i'm going to speak with my wife and she says yes and so he goes and he talks to her she says you know plenty of things oh she's just out for a walk or whatever and i need you to tell people some things you know and tell Bo this and tell morgan that and tell graham and this is the moment you're we like, oh, shit, she's really far gone. She's going to die soon because she knew she was talking to Graham. And now she's telling Graham to tell Graham something to see, tell him to see and tell Meryl to swing away. She dies. And then we're back in the living room with this alien situation. And Graham is looking around the room. He is seeing, as the case may be. And he's looking around and he sees the bat that was mentioned earlier on in the movie where Meryl said he still had the bat from when he he hit that 507 or whatever it was home run. He looks at it and he tells Meryl, swing away, Meryl. And Meryl looks at him and he's like, Meryl, swing away. Swing away, Meryl. Meryl, swing away. And Meryl looks to where Graham's looking and sees the bat. And this scene is dumb. Is dumb. What a twist. It's very dumb. It's dumb. And it really bothers me. All that deliberate pacing and long shots from the rest of the movie applied to this scene just does not work. There are these long shots where you see Meryl like squaring up and stuff like that. And you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. All you're doing is knocking over glasses of water. Right, but I mean, this should be happening a lot more frantically. It shouldn't be these scenes where the where the they're the aliens like juking around. <laughs> you know, it's it's really really bad. But anyway, I worry about M Night. <laughs> I worry that he writes these things and like sees them very differently in his mind, and yeah. then when he actually comes down to filming it, he doesn't have the gumption to admit that he was wrong. Yeah, they're they the part of this scene. So so if you know, alien poisons Morgan. Meryl grabs the bat, and when he goes to attack the alien, the alien drops Morgan. 
Graham grabs Morgan and Bo and runs outside with the EpiPen. Meryl's left inside to beat the shit out of this alien. When he knocks him down, he falls against a cabinet and one of Bo's glasses of water falls on him. The water falls on his on his shoulder and it's like acid on his skin. And so they realize the water really does hurt them. And it's not like this comes out of nowhere. They've been talking about it for the entire movie. So when people talk about the twist, it's not a fucking twist. They talk about it the whole goddamn movie. Multiple times they mention they don't like water. So fucking anyway. But it's the it's the filming of the scene that's the problem, I think. Meryl's smashing water glasses at him and burning the alien and all of this. Do we ever see the alien die? We see him cr- crumble to the ground. Yeah, but we never go back to the alien. We never see the alien again. Because the important thing is this whole movie is an alien invasion from the perspective of one family. And it's more about these characters than it is about the aliens. So in this m- moment where the real climax is happening is outside in the grass in the open air with Graham and Morgan and Bo sitting there watching and staring and you know she's freaking out because she doesn't want her brother to die remember she said that earlier Graham has the EpiPen and he stabs it into his leg and he's like come on breathe I need you to breathe you had an asthma attack tell me your lungs were closed and you didn't inhale that poison like that's the whole thing And then we see Meryl come out and we think, oh, good, Meryl's here. At least he can be here for this. He's not like missing what could be not like it's an exciting thing to experience (laughs) the death of his of his nephew. But you completely forget that there's an alien. There's an alien inside, (laughs) which is okay because that's the point of this movie. It's not about the aliens. It's about the signs. And Meryl's freaking out, and I think this is a really, really good job on Joaquin Phoenix's part. Like, I totally believe he's an uncle that's freaking out about his nephew. I hear stories about when I ran through a sliding glass door when I was really young, and the person who freaked out the most was my uncle. (laughs) He ran out, and he grabbed me, and he was holding me in his arms, and he was, like, crying. Because I had, like, glass inside of me, and I was bleeding everywhere. And they took me to the hospital, and I was fine. I have scars. I have a Harry Potter scar on my forehead that's faded over time. <laughs> Seriously, it's a lightning bolt. It's kind of dope. Anyway, Morgan asks, did somebody save me? That's how the tension breaks. Because they think he died. Yeah. Because too much time passes, and yeah. they think he died. Graham says, yeah, somebody saved you, or whatever. And hey, Morgan's alive. So cut to a while after this going on, the family seems to be doing fine. He's a father again. Yeah, he has his priest's collar on, and he's going to go back to being a priest. Because he believes there are no coincidences. That's the point. Out of this, he moved from group two to group one. And his journey was from one to two back to one again. And that's the end of the movie. So, Kelsey, lightning round. There's a funny line uh, when the officer is talking to them, when Mel Gibson is, like, talking to Abigail Breslin, like, you're too old for this. And so uh, she asks him, how's work at the gas station? And Walking Phoenix goes, stimulating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is pretty good. 
So we just got a tweet for whatever reason from Daily Flick NY on Twitter uh, to Jim Carrey and Pod Cemetery that Larry Cohen passed away, the writer of Maniac Cop and God Told Me To, and director of God Told Me To, just passed away today. That's too bad. That is too bad. He was 77. That's a bummer. So you have our live reaction to Larry Cohen passing away. Um, Yeah, we just did God Told Me To. We did Maniac Cop last year, both of them for St. Patrick's Day. That's really sad. Yeah. Just so everyone knows, he made another movie called Q, and that is also on our list. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to watch that and be thankful for him. Anyway, back to the movie. There's another really funny line from Joaquin Phoenix when he's in the closet. <laughs> Mel Gibson comes in and he's like, what are you doing in here? And he's like, I wanted the kids to go outside and play. You know, they should be out there. They should be playing Furry Furry Rabbit. And Mel Gibson's like, Furry Furry Rabbit. And Joaquin yeah, it's a just, game, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a game, isn't it? All they were doing was watching TV from 5 a.m. I felt like they were getting obsessed, like you said. They should be playing Furry Furry Rabbit or Tea Party or something. What's Furry Furry Rabbit? It's a game, isn't it? <laughs> Which was funny. It's really, really good. I wanted to address some things, some problems proactively that people have with the movie. So he's proactive, huh? First of all, the water. Yes, I said it's telegraphed way in advance. And explicitly, it is not some weird twist that came out of nowhere. Also, it's not the first movie to say aliens are afraid of water. And yet they invade Earth anyway. Alien Nation did it, although Alien Nation isn't so much of a an alien invasion movie per se. Seawater specifically is acidic to the aliens in that movie. Same thing with Day of the Triffids. Uh, and then you go to War of the Worlds, which is explicitly referenced in this movie, and they're killed by our um, germs. germs. So, like, this concept is not like M. Night Shyamalan came up with something he thought was cool and it totally failed. This has been a staple of sci-fi alien invasion stories for a very long time. And so people ask, okay, well, then why would the aliens actually invade if they knew the water was harmful? They probably did know the water was harmful, by the way. It's not like they didn't know. But obviously they did know because all of the signs are in landlocked areas away from water. Specifically, they were trying to avoid water. Well, then why come to Earth? Do you know how many Class M planets there are in the universe? You want to explain to people who don't watch Star Trek what Class M <laughs> means? Nerd. <laughs> They're planets that are that are hospitable like Earth is. They have the same conditions that Earth has and can support life. There aren't like a ton of them that may be within reach of these aliens, and we have no idea what their planet is like right now. It might be even worse, and they have to go somewhere, and Earth is the only option. These are not difficult inferences to make. It's more that people sometimes want to be very contrarian and say, haha, but what about this? And don't actually ask that question. They just say the words out loud and never actually think about it. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, there are plenty of reasons why an alien civilization would want to live somewhere that's not exactly hospitable to them. Where they're coming from might not be hospitable. There are plenty of people that live in areas here on Earth that are humans that live in areas that are not very hospitable, but they still manage to support life. Like, it happens 
deal with it. I we guess didn't say it about point. animals. We're like, why would they stay in this area? Yeah. It's uh-huh. li- like, they don't fucking know. They just live there. And that's right. what they have to deal with. And what about there's water vapor in the air? What about when it rains? Well, they're also coming in a time that's around early summer, late spring or so. So it's probably not raining as much. And they're hoping to create shelters or take over before that happens, before rain happens. There is water moisture in the air, but humidity, especially in certain areas, doesn't get up to 100% all the time. So it's going to be less damaging than actual physical contact with large amounts of water would be. So... I, I honestly do not have a problem with the water stuff. I My biggest problem in relation to the water stuff is that the filming of that last scene. It's that scene. In an otherwise it's great movie. It's badly made. Exactly. Exactly. In a movie that I think, separate from that, does, re- does a really great job with its direction and cinematography and acting. Like, that scene sucks. And yep. it really, really bothers me. Yeah. Why don't the aliens come with guns? They just have their gas stuff. They explain that. They talk about how in the first wave, they probably won't bring weapons because they know humans have nuclear weapons. And if they think they're going to be taken over before they can be, they'll nuke the planet and it's no longer hospitable. Mm-hmm. So that's not an option. Anyway, I just wanted to address those those few points because I know people bring them up all the time. I never had much of a problem with it being the water. I I agree that it's kind of dumb. But for all the reasons that you just said, it makes sense. And also, just exactly, like, you have no idea what situation they're coming out of. They could be extremely desperate and are just going for the first one they can find. Yeah. And they'll deal with it later because they think that they can kill humans off fast enough that it won't be a problem. Yeah. The horrible implication is, is that what was also said in the movie, one of two things would happen. One, they fight and are defeated and have to return again with full forces hundreds, maybe even thousands of years later. That's two. They win. They win. The implication is that unless this was the last of them and it was a last-ditch desperate effort, which there are things in the movie like we just discussed, which points to the fact that it might be the last of these aliens, but they do fly away and they go somewhere else so we don't know where But the implication is they could very well come back with more. But that's not the point of this movie. Mm -hmm. The point of this movie is this family. Yeah, it's just it's just dumb that it requires him to swing with a bat at the water. You just pick up the fucking glasses. (laughs) I don't understand (laughs) why he needs to swing away. I feel like that would take more time. (laughs) Right. But he does physically hit the alien and stuff. And he is a strong guy. And so he's the one. They need to physically confront him with the water in concert with the water. So, uh, you know. And in the mom's dying moments, she's seeing through time or whatever. And she has a connection with her daughter. The daughter who also sees things. So we don't know what's going on there. Do they have some sort of inherent psychic ability? Have they always had it? And it just comes to the surface in this moment when she's about to die. But Bo does a better job of tapping into that. We don't know. It's just implications that are fun to think about. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 70. 73. With signs, Shyamalan proves once again an expert at building suspense and giving audiences the chills. 
Metacritic of 59. Not quite as broad as they live, but still there's a gulf there of 14%. Cinema score of B. So people walked out of the film fairly satisfied. Oh, yeah. If I walked out, I would have given it probably a B plus. Yeah. Roger Ebert said M. Night Shyamalan's Signs is the work of a born filmmaker able to summon apprehension out of thin air. When it is over, we think not how little has been decided, but how much has been experienced. At the end of the film, I had to smile, recognizing how Shyamalan has essentially ditched a payoff. He knows, as we all sense, that payoffs have grown boring. Uh, He gave it four stars. So he really liked Signs. What would you give Signs if you had to give it a score? Probably a 79. Really? I really, really like it. Same as they live? Yeah. I really, really like it a lot. It has a lot of issues, and it's a shame that all this buildup led to that. But it's so good in so many other respects. I think it deserves a 79, but not quite an 80. Yeah, I'm going to give it an 85. I think the technical skill on display in this movie is worthy of giving it a higher score than the fun I had with They Live. I had a lot of fun with They Live. I really enjoy it. But I think there's something to be said about just the talent here, which makes it all the more frustrating when he makes awful movies. I feel like this was the first hint at his overstuffed ego. Yeah. And I feel like that comes forth a lot through some things. Sure. And that really just turns me off from the movie, which is why it's still not getting that 80. He has more to say, like, actually, literally in this movie, the part that he plays, he gets to have this big emotional moment. You know, whereas what, in in The Sixth Sense, he played, what, like a dentist or something? What did What was his role in The Sixth Sense again? It was just uh, a minor No, he was the part. doctor who was worried that she was beating her son. Oh, right. Yeah. We also but didn't that's mention- not really what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah, it kind of bothers me that he gave himself a fucking role for no reason. But that's really not what I mean. What I mean is... No, I, I understand what you mean. I'm saying this is another symptom of that. Yeah, but he just has so much confidence at this point. It's like, it's almost like he can't lose. Yeah, like, like I said, I feel like... He's the mighty Casey. He never said, you know what, this kind of doesn't translate, (laughs) so maybe we should change it. There's a part where Abigail Breslin frames, like, a window and looks inside, and that just seems super forced to me, Mm -hmm. and that bothered me a lot. It can be really sappy sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Like crazy sappy. Uh, There's a part where Joaquin Phoenix is like, I don't ever want to see you act like that again. It's just like, fucking really? Like, based on what's happening, I'm pretty sure he should be allowed to act however the fuck he wants. No, I think that what he's saying there is he doesn't like seeing his older brother, who he looks up to as a role model, being like doubting and, and feeling so nihilistic. And that hurts him. It's not like... You know, you need to suck it up. It's more like... No, I know. As your little brother, it hurts me to see you like that. But that seems just super sappy for what's happening. Like, I feel like if you're in the middle of a fucking alien invasion, I think people can be as nihilistic or as hopeful as they want to be. Well, they didn't think that they were in the middle of an alien invasion at that point. It was ending at that point. Anyway, (laughs) 
totally fine. Like I said, I think he's kind of like like the mighty Casey. Casey at bat, you know, speaking of swinging wildly, this is the opposite of that. You know, where he's just so overly confident that he, he kind of stops trying, I think. Mm-hmm. And we get these other movies. And in that confidence, that ego doesn't go away. In Lady in the Water, he plays a writer. Oh, yeah. That who, it gets really bad. Who by is that the time. savior of all of everything I in this movie. Lady in the Water. And critic. <laughs> The critic is wrong and negative, and how dare he speak ill of the sa- the great savior, the writer, and he gets to kill off the critic, who's Bob Balaban, by the way. Like, it's really going over the top in Lady in the Water. Still liked it. Yeah. But that was, for a while, that was the last good M. Night Shyamalan movie, and then really liked The Visit, loved Split, haven't seen Glass yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That is... 2002 signs and thus our episode about alien invasions kelsey what are we watching next week next week is april fool's day oh is it okay is so i think we're at the last of the april fool's day horror movies since last week all right i mean our last year i think unless they do one in the future i think it's a double feature i say i think because far too many people have said that the one that I think is the remake, uh-huh. they think it's a remake of the April Fool's Day movie we watched last year. But I think that that's a mistake because based on what happens, like what the um, synopsis says, it sounds like it's a remake of this other movie. So here's uh, the first movie is called Slaughter High. Uh-huh. And then the remake is called April Fool's Day. I think they called the original Slaughter High because April Fool's Day had already been taken. Yeah. And I think that that's where the confusion is. So it is a remake of an April Fool's movie, of a movie that was supposed to be called April Fool's Day, but couldn't because there was already an April Fool's Day. So now people are confusing what it's a remake for. Exactly. We will find out. We have no idea. We haven't seen either of these. So we're going to find out. We'll figure it out for you, and we'll bring it to you next week. Yes. For uh, what may become our last April Fool's Day episode. I don't know. If you know of more April Fool's Day-themed horror movies, (laughs) please let us know. (sighs) April Fool's, you're a fool. (laughs) That is next week. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, which is podcemetery.com. There you can browse all of our episodes and a list of every movie we've ever had on the show in alphabetical order. If you're looking to explore our backlog, that's a great way to do it. Find a movie that you like or that intrigues you, watch it, and listen to that episode. You can leave a comment on any episode on the website, share your thoughts on the movies, or even recommend one or two for us to cover in a future episode. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. On our Twitter page, I often add comments that I think of while I'm editing the episodes. That includes some visual stuff uh, that doesn't translate well on the podcast itself. So if you want to get like the extra stuff, you can follow us there. Kelsey will sometimes also live tweet a horror movie and this is her spring break. So maybe once this week, but she's really busy. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. 
Uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are absolutely hugely helpful. We've been getting some really, really good ones lately. So guys, if you've done that already, thank you so, so much. It's fantastic to see some of the stuff that you've written. It really does help us quite a bit. And if you haven't yet, consider doing it yourself. Uh, more important than that is share us with your friends. Spread the good word. And even more important than that is just listening in the first place. So thank you very much for that. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? The nerds were right. The nerds were right. That's a pretty good one. Okay. The nerds were right. Is that how he says it? I don't know. Say it a couple different ways, just real quick. The nerds were right. The nerds were right. The nerds were right. Perfect. I'll use one of those. Thank you, Bear. Is that how you're going to say it? These pretzels are making me thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for another Supernatural check-in. Carry on my way with That's how I introduce the Supernatural check-in? Okay. And that's our Supernatural check-in. Now be peace when you are down. Wait, which neighborhood? It oh oh our neighborhood. It was in the city. We literally lived there. <laughs> we lived in the city that they filmed it in. It's not like it was on the street that we were on. That's what you're making it sound like. It's a block away from where we lived. <laughs> oh really? Yes, uptown Whittier. That street. That, that is they not come- a block away. Okay, you have to walk around. We were at the bottom. I'm not. This isn't going in the episode. We were at the bottom of a hill, right? Uh Just on the other side of that was one street. That was um, Carpenter or whatever it was. One street away from that was fucking uptown. It was a block away. We were not that close. (laughs) You could walk there in five minutes. No, you couldn't. Yes, you could. No, you couldn't. Oh. Why do you fucking need to take this from me? Why is this part of it for you? Just saying, don't overstate it. We were very close.